0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org.
1: Today on Boston Public Radio, the Supreme Court saga continues. What was supposed to be smooth sailing for Trump and the GOP could turn into this year's October surprise. We'll talk to Meet the Press' Chuck Todd about the latest developments surrounding Kavanaugh's calamitous confirmation and other politics headlines. Then we open the lines and ask you, as messy as it's become, could the Kavanaugh allegations be a good thing for small-D democracy? And for Big D, Democrats.
2: At noon, former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrew Cabral joins for this week's edition of Law and & Order. And after crisscrossing the country on two national tours, Hamilton finally comes to Boston's Opera House. Does it live up to the hype? We'll ask WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen about that and other arts, culture events and controversies around town. That and more is next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Hello, Jim.
1: Hello there, Marjorie. So amid the mounting crises in the Trump White House from the Supreme Court saga to the Mueller investigation and Manafort's flip, is it time for President Trump to trade in his Rolling Stones rally song, You Can't Always Get What You Want, for 19th Nervous Breakdown? Joining us on the line to take on these and other headlines is Chuck Todd. Chuck's the moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10.30 on NBC Boston. He's also the host of Meet the Press Daily and MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Hey there, Chuck Todd.
3: How are we doing? Happy Thursday. And to you. To you, too.
2: So, uh, Chuck Todd, uh, Chuck, uh, Senator Chuck Grassley has said that uh, there needs to be a statement by 10 a.m. tomorrow uh, from the accuser of would-be Justice Kavanaugh. If she doesn't produce a statement, or her lawyers don't, then then what happens? Do we have a do we have a, a hearing on Monday with just Kavanaugh sitting there?
3: You know, and this is the look. On one hand, I think that Senator Grassley has made it clear he's willing to he's given the appearance that he's willing to be flexible on how she testifies, but he's not showing flexibility on when she testifies. Right. And and I think that that's I think um, good on him for showing flexibility of how she testifies, public, not public, lawyers out to California, all those things. Um, but I don't think they have a good explanation of why it has to be Monday or bust, right? Why why can't it be another week? You know, I, look, I think Democrats that say oh it can go to the lame duck, they're playing games too, right? They're 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 wanting to game the system and say oh let's see if Democrats control the Senate. Um, you know, no but there is not a good argument by anybody making a case of why i mean the best argument you can make is why this has to be done monday is cuz you want a ninth justice on the court in time for the for 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 opening for opening day on the court in october that's about the only case you can make on that there's really even this court operated obviously for a year with eight justices so they've proven they can handle it just fine What's wrong with mid-October?
1: You know, but Chuck, you say that's the only good argument, as we have learned. Good arguments have nothing to do with anything. I want <laughs> to uh, get back to this. Look, I,
3: I actually try to look for a good argument. You know, you're right. It doesn't matter. It just It's the argument that works, with good or bad.
1: Can we get back to Monday, though? Marjorie and I were talking before uh, you gave us a buzz, and I'm trying to imagine the scenario. So if there is a hearing and if she, uh, uh, Professor Ford has not submitted a statement, meaning she's not there— uh Kevin has got to respond to something does chuck grassley read the washington post story out loud with the quotes i mean i'm serious i, I mean how does it work Do they I put a chair know. with her face on it
3: <laughs> in the hearing room i don't think this hearing happens oh you don't if if, yeah i just don't think it happens i mean i don't think it's going to turn i don't think the republicans are going to create a spectacle like that i think that that's playing with Fire here too, I think everybody 's a little nervous about the politics of this for what it 's worth left and right, yes, you know as as we know the culture wars you, you never know how they 're going to break politically okay you you, you just don 't know um, who it fires up, who it doesn 't fire up and and how this and the and the fights over the court have a way of uniting the Republican base in ways that nothing else has united them this year, so you just don 't know how this is going how this is going to play out politically, but I have to tell you i i I come back to trying to put my I'm trying to put myself in judge Kavanaugh's shoes so this is out there do you want this asterisk do you want to be you know how bad do you want to be in the court do you want this asterisk if 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 this were me and I'm as innocent as I as he claims he is then bring on the FBI investigation ask for it
1: is that still possible, I mean, do you think? I mean, we all remember just a, just a few days ago, there was only going to be inter- telephone interviews, and then a few hours later, there was a full-blown well, hearing.
3: The president of the United States can order a background, basically the reopening of the background check.
1: As they did That's on Anita did. Hill, right?
3: That's what this is. That's exactly what they did with Anita Hill. So you just open it up, and they talk to people involved, and they you know do the best that they can. It doesn't seem to be – I. I Again, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking about Justice Thomas here and thinking about – Me too. Do we know for sure – do we know for sure that he would be the justice that he is today had he not gone through – you know, it's possible that the reason he's the guy who never says a word is he decided after that experience he's going to lay low. Maybe the experience embittered him, right? And maybe he's let decisions impact him. The point is we don't know – we don't know if he would have been a different justice had the circumstances been different. Maybe he'd have been the most, um, you know, the, the, the guy who spoke the most um, and when, he, when he listened to, to this stuff, depending on. You know what I mean? This, you can't tell me this isn't going to have an impact on how he acts as a justice. You can't tell me that the experience didn't have an impact. He's a human being. Human beings react normally. You know, it is okay to, you know, it happens, right? You, you, you react personally. I just think, and yet he's been on there with an asterisk, right? He's always had an asterisk for anybody that went through that. You've always had this weird asterisk next to Thomas, right? It was this weird moment, and, and everybody's been uncomfortable with how that went down. Does Judge Kavanaugh want that asterisk?
1: Yeah, but here, but but, oh, but right. Chuck, but even but if, if even he if may there have is... it
3: anyway. But I would want to at least, you know, I think if you get through a background, and if you have the FBI reopen it and they get through the background check. I think it makes that – at least puts the asterisk in pencil.
2: Here's – when you talk about reacting personally, let me react a little bit, less as a journalist but as a woman and a mother mm-hmm. and a regular citizen. If they don't have a hearing, this is what the Republican Senate and the President of the United States is saying to me, that they have a man accused by, by all accounts, a very respectable, uh, upstanding woman of attempted rape – and they don't care whether he did it or not. They're prepared to put the second sex offender, credibly accused sex offender, on the Supreme Court. And Clarence Thomas, in his almost-saying-nothing time on that court, has nonetheless ruled against women on reproductive rights, on equal pay issues, on their women's ability to sue for sexual harassment in the workplace. I mean, I, I can't be the only woman here... Who's beside herself over this oh
3: and Marjorie you 're not going to be and this is you you just you just raised what I think is is the politically the worst outcome for the Republicans is if they jam this through next week
1: but they right? are if aren't they
3: jam they? this through that next week i don 't know i don 't buy that they will. I think that I know there's discomfort there every again I, I look this is one of those, and I know it's possible. If Kavanaugh withdraws, it helps the Republicans, and if they put it through, it helps the Democrats. I know that that's weirdly counterintuitive, (laughs) but (laughs) picture scenario. I I agree completely. I think you're totally right. (laughs) Where where the where this would have that kind of political impact? You know, the ultimate Pyrrhic victory, particularly for the Republicans here. I think if they go through it this next week, and they've only basically, you know, they they put they gave her a deadline of when she can, of, of 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 how she comes. Goes about this, I I just think it's going to then become an issue that rallies the left in a big way. Um, and yet, if 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 he withdraws, if Kavanaugh withdraws, it's very possible this unifies the Republican base in a way that we hadn't seen really since the two weeks before the presidential
1: election. Can we talk about a couple of the individuals for a second? Uh, Marjorie's favorite, and I mean that sarcastically, Senator Susan Collins, oh. Lisa Murkowski, Flake, Corker. Now, Corker, even though he's sort of part of the resistance in the Senate after wanting to be vice president before he was part of the resistance, uh, Corker said, I guess it was yesterday, well, let's do Monday. If she, I'm paraphrasing. If she doesn't show up, then he did say this, just, let's vote. So put him aside from it, the Flakes the Murkowskis, the, the Collins, if they lose two of them and, uh, uh, and the Democrats hold, which I think is m- much more likely after the Professor Ford thing too, than it was and before. I never would
3: have said that two weeks yeah, ago. Me, yeah, nor yeah. I. Uh,
1: do all those people end up voting for Kavanaugh even though Professor Ford never had an opportunity on her terms, admittedly, to state her case before the American people?
3: You know, I don't – you know, it's interesting, and i want to go back to Thomas here, and this is where part of me says I, I'm not as convinced he has the votes because of what you're saying. Remember, one of the reasons why Thomas got confirmed is that there was a slew of Southern Democratic senators at the time. Chuck Robb was in Virginia. You had um, uh, you had um, Sam Nunn still in Georgia. In fact, two of them, Sam Nunn and Weiss Fowler. You had Hal Heflin in Alabama, you had a whole slew of Southern Democrats who essentially got reelected based you know would, would, at this point in time in the, in the late '80s, early '90s were winning on the backs of African American voters and there was a perception among Senate Democrats in the South that if they voted against Thomas, African American voters would punish them for this. so he got confirmed thanks to Southern Democratic senators remember Democrats had the majority. Mm-hmm. I think a similar – what I've been wondering is that there's – is there going to be a similar fear factor among some Republican senators about women? You know, this gender gap keeps widening. You know, you know, there's. You think, oh, geez, 12 points, 15 points, 20 points. I mean, at some point you would think the fear of the gender gap biting them in reelection would – give them pause at railroading this through or or the perception that they're railroading it through. So that's why I am not convinced that a party line vote, I I just, I think there will be a couple senators that back off a party line vote. I do. I think if this is headed for a party line 51 49, we've never had a Supreme court justice this way. and, And I just think it's a, that is a We have never, I don't think there's ever been a Supreme court justice that did not get at least one vote from the other party. That would be, a, I think, a very, very, very bad precedent. I think there are enough Republican senators who would want to avoid that.
1: Hey, Chuck, can you stay with us for all three hours today, please? <laughs> no, but can I do a follow-up to that just for one second, Marjorie? Yeah. One person you didn't, one Democrat you didn't name, who I think also suffers in the wake of this Kavanaugh thing, no matter what, is Joe Biden. Uh, Biden, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I believe, voted 100%. no, but Bo- I, I was had Jill Abramson on the other night, former executive editor of the New York Times, who, along with Jane Mayer, as you know, has written extensively about the hearing. She was there. They also believe mm-hmm. Thomas has committed impeachable sexual offenses since he's been on the uh, uh, Supreme Court, not just from before. Joe Biden re- refused to call four women who would have been theoretically corroborating witnesses for Anita Hill. That rears its head again. Regardless of what the Kavanaugh outcome is, if Joe Biden decides to put his foot in this pool, uh, does it not?
3: Uh, It does. Look, I've thought there's two things. There's always been two moments that he's got to fix in his political career if he's going to be able to survive this Democratic electorate. One is Anita Hill and the other is is the crime bill of the mid 90s, Mm -hmm. which which increased African-American incarceration levels to to these highs that now that, that, frankly, people on both sides of the aisle have said it turned out to be a mistake, but he was the champion of that. So he is—he's got a—he brings a ton of baggage on two specific issues that I think are front and center for a lot of Democratic voters. Right? One is the criminal justice system, and one is basically gender—you know—the issues important to women. Uh, and while yes, he has been the Violence Against Women Act is is that joe biden championing that too so he's got plenty in his background where he's been on the forefront but yes i think that that he would he would be dealing his mid-90s record starting in 91 with anita hill and going through the crime bill of 96 um that would that would if he doesn't get the democratic nomination it'll be because of his votes in that five-year period
2: You know, then you've got the optics here of 85-year-old Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch, who I think is 84, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Orrin Hatch, as we know, is waving a copy of The Exorcist back at the Anita Hill hearings, accusing her of plagiarizing and coming up with the pubic hair and the Coke can line from that. Now you've got Orrin Hatch, who seems to have learned nothing from the Me Too movement, in which almost everybody denies everything, just like Kavanaugh is denying everything, uh, saying, well... I know Judge Kavanaugh, and I sure do believe him. But I don't know her, so I don't believe her. I mean, I can just imagine the heads popping off uh, if if these men show such ignorance on in any kind of hearing on Monday.
3: You know, oh, well, that's why I think this hearing. I've just never believed this hearing was going to happen. I think this hearing is so fraught with peril, more for Republicans than the democrats but for no women and then they have this idea of having female staffers question her, and i'm just sitting there so what you're going to do is bring more attention to the fact that you don't have women up there and and i'm sorry these are elected officials I, i understand if these were bureaucrats who'd oh my god having to question a woman at 85 these are elected officials they have to win votes they're out there talking to people and we have to protect them from themselves. Oh boy! Don't let the old guy ask questions of women. Let's find another woman. Are you kidding me? Does that mean that any time an African American's up there, you have to get an African American <laughs> to ask questions? Like this is just—I just—I don't understand why somebody thought that was a good idea and such a good idea. Let's leak it out. Well, okay, if this hearing happens, really? You know, Chuck Todd. I mean, at least say to tell me this. Tell me you're going to bring Susan Collins and Deb Fischer to come question. At least they're United States senators, (laughs) okay? (laughs) This idea of having a staffer—that's just—it's embarrassing.
2: You know, Chuck Todd. One last thing uh, for, before you go. You know, they had all those secret sex, sexual harassment uh, settlements in the Congress, and where they uh, yeah. we don't know who were the sexual harassers.
1: A lot of them with tax money, by the way.
2: Yes. Do, do we know if any of them are sitting on the Senate <laughs> Judiciary Committee that, or in the Senate? They're going to be voting on Kavanaugh or not?
3: Here's what I can tell you. If there are, my guess is we're going to find out pretty soon, aren't we?
2: God, I hope so. <laughs> thank
1: you, Chuck. It's great to talk uh, to thank you yeah. as so much, always. Thanks Chuck for your time.
2: Uh, Chuck Todd. Uh, do meet- you know
1: about that thing he just mentioned at the end about the the pro- the notion that women staffers might ask the question? No, I didn't
2: know, and that's oh, why I'm so glad we gosh. have him on because he knows a lot more than we do, and he's that's wonderful. Chuck Todd joins us every week, and we're so glad he does. He's moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 10:30 on NBC Boston Channel 10 on most providers. He's also the host of my second favorite show after Jim's, of course, Meet the Press daily on MSNBC. Uh, and the political director for NBC News. So up next, we are opening the lines yet again, asking you about the latest developments surrounding the Kavanaugh confirmation. Listen to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie again. The Republicans have an opportunity here to get to the truth in the Ford-Kavanaugh charge and denial to slow the entire process down to do this right. And seeing that this is a pretty important appointment and that it's for life, why not do it right? It's questions forcing the GOP to do some serious calculations ahead of the midterms. The male-dominated party, by not taking Christine Blasey Ford's accusation against Kavanaugh seriously, could be penalized at the polls by alienating female voters. But off the latest developments, it looks like the GOP thinks pushing Kavanaugh onto the highest court is a risk worth taking. The chair of the committee, Chuck Grassley, has set a Friday morning deadline, as we said, for Christine Blasey Ford to decide if she'll testify on Monday. And even though he says he won't yield on the Monday date, he's offering her four options for testifying, an open hearing, a closed committee hearing, and either a public or a private question and answer by transcription. So we want to know... Where are you on all this at 877-301-8970? If you're a Republican, do you support the tactic? GOP women out there, could this affect your vote? And if Kavanaugh is not fully investigated, will questions about his legitimacy be a dark cloud over his tenure and over the tenure of those who choose to vote for him? You know, Marjorie, we, our number is eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Chuck just said to us a minute ago, He was quite sure that there has never been a Supreme Court nominee who's been confirmed without any votes from the other party. And uh, uh, our coworkers just double-checked. That is true. Uh, And this would be a first. And I I think there were three Democrats, am I not right, from red states who voted for Neil Gorsuch? I think that's right. And regardless, I think maybe before the Ford charges, they might have broken party ranks and joined the Republicans. I think right now this is a straight party vote. Unless some Republicans decide they're not going to do it. So do you think there's going to be hearing? Chuck doesn't think there's even going to be hearing. He also dropped into that conversation a couple of times if Kavanaugh withdraws. If Kavanaugh withdraws. We haven't talked about that much either. Is it possible that ultimately the Trump administration is going to decide that they want him to pull – out of this thing and uh, pick somebody else for whom they'll fight on another day. The number is 877-301-8970.
2: Yeah, and you can also tweet us at Boss Public Radio or Facebook at Boston Public Radio. Um, uh, Can we go to the calls?
1: Well, I just want to say a couple of things. I I, I really do believe that the potential for this to be Year of the Woman – on steroids. Part two could be really huge. Everybody knows now that uh, the year of the woman in Congress was essentially a backlash, I guess you could say, to the Clarence Thomas hearings that everybody now knows There went from two to six women in the Senate. The four additional women were all uh, uh, Democrats. I think the number was 47 women were elected in the House, 24 for the first time. So that was, <clears throat> excuse me, obviously very significant. And as I've mentioned, you guys, virtually every day in the last week, the ABC Washington Post most recent poll on the generic congressional ballot, meaning no names, you're going to vote for a Democrat or Republican. Uh, while there's a 10 point margin for uh, overall for the Democrats, there's a 25 point margin amongst women, all women. Uh, and that's before this whole Kavanaugh thing broke. So I, I think the stakes here are well uh, a beyond, Well, not beyond, but in addition to a lifetime appointment or a lifetime confirmation of the Supreme Court, which is obviously huge, I think this, this the implications come the midterms are even huger. 877-301-8970. Can you say one other thing what? that I was shocked by this morning as we were preparing for today's show? You read a piece, I think it was in the Washington Post, about the statute of limitations on actions like uh, uh, Professor Ford suggests were committed – by Kavanaugh and this Mark Judge character?
2: Yes. A former uh, uh, U.S. attorney down there uh, in Maryland said that if you bring someone with you, as uh, Ford alleges Kavanaugh did, this judge character, into an attempted rape, which this is what she's accusing him of, there there is no statute of limitations, which means that- Well, that's
1: a huge deal. That is a
2: huge deal, which means that essentially- um, Kavanaugh could be uh, accused, indicted, uh, and tried. Now, it's very unlikely because this is a case from a long time ago, but that's really significant. Um, But if that's
1: true, then why aren't the law enforcement people in whatever county it's in Have they reached out to her apart from whether the FBI should investigate or not? Have they reached out to her and say we'd like to talk to you because there is no statute of limitations and what you appear to be describing in your Washington Post interview and your lawyers are describing appears to fit? That definition? They, have we heard anything about that? Uh,
2: no, we have not heard anything about that. And I was stunned when I read that this morning. But that apparently a, a, a former U.S. attorney in, in in Maryland should know about the law in Maryland. And that's uh, what he has written. 877-301-8970. Let's start with Jay in Newton. Hi, Jay.
1: Hello, Jay. Welcome.
4: Hi. First time, long time. Thanks for taking my call.
1: Thank you for both those things. Welcome.
4: Sure. So I agree pretty much with everything that you've said and, and – I listen to a lot of the talking heads on the radio, and the only thing that I'm not really hearing or seeing is any of the, the moderate Republican um, senators who, in my opinion, need to put pressure um, either up front or behind the scenes with the leaders to say, hey, listen, if we don't have the, uh, you know, an FBI investigation, you know, you cannot count on my vote. And I'm just wondering, I mean, we heard from Flake, he's really the only one that has kind of come out and kind of implied. That, um, you know, that get this thing over with. But I'm curious as to your opinion as to do you think that that's really the only recourse to the only leverage? Because we know we can't count on Trump to do the right thing. So to me, that's really the only chance that yeah. an FBI hearing is going to be open.
1: Well, I, 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 and, and that was the issue I tried to raise uh, with Chuck Todd. I find it hard to believe that 51 out of 51 uh, Republicans – including a few have been very critical of Trump uh, in the past, including the, the two pro-choice women, are just going to fall into line if she never has an opportunity to tell her story. And keep in mind, Jay, she's not saying... Uh, 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 setting ridiculous uh, uh, terms. I want to repeat what I said to Chuck Todd for those who don't know the history, and I didn't remember it until I was doing a little research yesterday. This is not uh, unprecedented. This is exactly what happened when Anita uh, Hill came forward late in the hearings on Clarence Thomas. And one of the great ironies, talk about a different time. Do you know who decided the FBI should investigate the charges against uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, Jay from Newton? The president of the United right. States, who nominated Clarence Thomas, George H. W. Bush, and ultimately they said the findings of the FBI uh, uh, cleared him. And by but the way, what a different time
2: at the Anita Hill hearings. Orrin Hatch went on and on about how the president had done the right thing by bringing in this investigation.
1: Oh, I didn't remember uh, that. Is that. So now
2: he's saying the exact opposite.
1: So Jay, the long winded answer to your to your much more focused question than our or my response. Is I do hold out hope that there are people of principle in the Republican Party, even if they ultimately end up voting for Kavanaugh because they believe him, who will say we should postpone this thing because getting to the truth is more important to getting to an outcome fast. So, Jay, thanks for listening and for your first call. And please uh, do it again. eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy.
2: You know, it, it is it is just incredible when you think about what the uh, president and his Republican enablers are trying to do here. They're trying to rush through the appointment to the Supreme Court for life of the second credibly accused sex offender, uh, first being Clarence Thomas, who, in, in case people don't know, was accused by Anita Hill, but since then has been accused by multiple other women, uh, and including a... Rear-end squeezing. Uh, when he he's was been ac- on the court. sitting ac- 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 yeah. justice. And there were also four of the women who could have corroborated mm-hmm. her story who were never there. So we have multiple people uh, who have accused uh, Clarence Thomas. We have one person right now accusing um, uh, Kavanaugh. Although The Intercept has just reported some news about other people alleging things involving Brett Kavanaugh. But I have to read through it before I um, go any further with that.
0: But, I thought – I'm sorry.
2: but But the point is – Why – you know, I understand the Republicans' political needs to rush this, but that's basically what they're doing. They're basically saying we don't – we have to rush
1: this. Yeah, but you're saying I understand their political needs, but – why but? This is – what they campaigned, this campaign, a huge part of the Trump campaign, other than Trump himself, was we're going to change this court. We are going to create a court that will re- uh, repeal Roe v. Wade, that will right. change this country for decades. But I think it's they problematic. Are, they are one vote away from getting there.
2: But I think it's very problematic for most fair-minded Americans to change the court with someone who has been accused of what he's been accused of without an investigation. To at least Was look there an like investigation
1: you... of Donald Trump? I can't remember.
2: No, there isn't, and that's Well, real... they voted
1: for him, didn't they? So the well, well, again, answer is maybe you're again, misreading the again,
2: public. They voted for him. I've said this a million times before the Me Too movement. Well, it true. has been that's historical true. in the United States of America that we don't believe sex uh, crime victims. We just don't believe them. We've begun to believe them yeah, a right. little bit more, right. although we're still seeing massive disbelief of, of, of Ms. Ford, but we have, since the Me Too movement, and you know why? Because... <laughs> These guys all do exactly what Kavanaugh has done. They all deny everything. Clarence Thomas denied everything. Bill Cosby denied everything. Bill Clinton denied everything. Uh, Bill O'Reilly denied everything. Roy Moore denied everything. They all deny everything. And they've got – Bill
1: Clinton didn't deny everything forever.
2: Well, he didn't deny everything forever, but he did for a hell of a long time. So, again, uh, I think that you begin to say to yourself, gee (laughs) – Who's really lying
1: here? <laughs> Sherry and Lunenberg, you're next on Boston Public Area. Thanks so much for calling. Hi.
0: Hi. Hi. This is my first call. Ooh. Um, I'm calling because, as Marjorie was just talking about, was how everybody denies. Susan Collins this morning was talking about how emphatically he denies what he did or didn't do or whatever. But I just want to know, when was the first time somebody said, yeah, that was me? I did. Exactly. That's right. That never happens. And I'm not saying he did it or didn't do it. I would like to try and keep an open mind about it. However, when everybody else seems to think, well, he's so emphatic, how could he possibly have done this? Yeah, come on. Do you remember, Sherry, do you before remember Clarence you, Thomas sorry.
2: in the hearings, how he got up there in oh, no. oh, no. this indignant voice and called everything? You know what he did, too, I-Tech which Lynch. is very interesting, which I re- realized when I reread the transcript? Um, she – Anita Hill listened to uh, – followed the hearings. When Clarence Thomas was asked if he'd listened to Anita Hill's testimony, he said no. He was, Why would she listen to any more lies? And then he got up there and unequivocally denied everything. And as we now know, I think it's fairly clear, Sherry, we know who was lying in that instance, and it wasn't Anita Hill. Sherry,
1: just before you go, just to get Marjorie more aggravated with Senator Collins than she already is, when Senator Collins was saying that uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh emphatically denied the charges, did she also say that Professor Ford emphatically supports her own story or no? I
0: heard this on a clip here, so no, I did not hear her say anything of that nature.
1: Well, I think it's a major, big, big, big moment in the uh, career of uh, of Susan Collins. And I think how she behaves here is how she will be judged by history. Sherry, another good first call. Make one again. You too. Thank you. There's
2: a front page story in the Boston Globe this morning about Republicans risk-angering women in the Kavanaugh case. I guess I have exhibit A on that one. But they have a quote in here from uh, Senator Collins uh, from a uh, radio station interview yesterday uh, where she says that Kavanaugh's lawyers uh, should be allowed to question Ford and vice versa, uh, setting up what the Globe calls a potentially uh, intimidating courtroom-like setting. Here's the quote from Collins. I think it's not fair to judge Kavanaugh for her not to come forward and testify, saying then that the allegations would hang over Kavanaugh's head.
1: Right. And the answer, Senator Collins, is she's more than willing to come and testify as long as you do an FBI investigation, just like President Bush, the first ordered in the Clarence Thomas case. End of discussion. John in Bristol. You're next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling.
4: Thank you. Good morning, folks. I just have a question, um, actually a comment about Chuck Todd's remarks with respect to if Kavanaugh um, walks away, um, it would help the Republican base and hurt the Democrats. I kind of disagree with that a little bit with respect to the fact that if Kavanaugh did walk away, my opinion, I hope more opinions would agree with this, it's an admission of guilt or fear of guilt with respect to what he has done. And he doesn't want that to further impact where he is in life. Because if in fact he did do that, it not only hurts his case of becoming Supreme Court Justice, it hurts who he is in current day life. So I think that's something that needs to be thought about if he does walk
1: away. Well, John, I, I I tend to agree with you, except if he did walk away, you know what he would say. I'm not saying it'd be convincing. He would say, I want to start by reiterating, I have never done anything like what Professor Ford suggests I did to her. Never would, never have. But frankly, what matters more to me than a seat on the Supreme Court is a... Uh, 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 my family and, you know, on and on like this. And so for the good of my family and uh, maybe even says for the good of the country because f- screaming at each other is not terribly healthy, he steps out. But I uh, I agree with you. The conventional wisdom will be that uh, he's a uh, guilty man. So uh, uh, you – you actually may have something there. John, thank you for the call. 877-301-8970. You know,
2: and we, I think everybody knows, but it's worth repeating, that um, since these charges have been public in the woman's name, uh, Christine Blasey Ford has been made public. Um, she's received multiple debt threats and had to move out of her house and is living separately mm-hmm. with her children, and her email has been hacked, and people have impersonated her online, and et cetera. So it, it, it does... Um, Anita Hill was ha, didn't have that long to prepare for her testimony either. But this is an extraordinary situation for Ms. Ford. You, you're you're thinking. What about my children if I go ahead? What about my ever going back to my normal life if if I go ahead? We all remember the pictures of Anita Hill just being mobbed mm-hmm. um, by reporters and photographers and, and protesters after her well, testimony.
1: Well, add one thing. If I can just quote myself uh, uh, yesterday, for those who question her credibility, I think the strongest uh, uh, support for her credibility is that she's the one who's calling – for an FBI investigation. Speaking personally, if I was making up a story about anything, the last thing I would do if I had a choice between just testifying and perpetuating the lie or having the FBI investigate what I say is true, but I know is a lie, is calling the FBI. She's the one who wants the FBI to look into the underlying facts. If anything underscores her credibility, in my opinion, it's that.
2: And so does the fact that she said there was a second person in the right. room. that's a very And important. they're not even bothering to interview the second person in the room. Now, did you hear we Wendy
1: Murphy make that point last night on CNN? No, I did Our not. Our buddy but, Wendy Murphy made a, the exact same point.
2: point. Now, it's not surprising that he can't remember this, because he wrote an entire book, how he, about how he spent much of his high school and college career blacked out. That's Judge we're talking judge, about, not Judge una- Kavanaugh. And yes, My and judge. unable to forget, remember almost anything. So what he can't remember isn't that surprising. But, you know, it's not that hard to do an investigation. Many people have pointed out it's not that time-consuming. You, you, you talk to Judge, you talk to Kavanaugh, you talk to Ford. You try to get some idea of who else might have been at this party, who their circle of friends were in high school. There was a woman who posted on Facebook, a classmate of Ford's, I who said that. she heard rumors about this incident in school. She then was, of course, mobbed by those of us in the media, and that's what we do, go out and try to get interviews with and somebody. she stepped about back a this. drop. Not, not... She stepped back and said she did not know, she had no firsthand, first-hand right, knowledge of right. whether this incident happened, but she did know uh, that there were Rumors about the incident at her school. You have had other people. Uh, an extremely eloquent uh, friend of hers was on television last night uh, talking about her her credibility, yeah, so, her uh, her professional um, excellence, etc. And the woman was really an impressive witness. You could have there are a lot of
1: women vouching for Kavanaugh too. What is it? Is it sixty five or yes, some large? Exactly. Large... Uh,
2: so um, she's a very credible person, and it's not. You know, you, you ask yourself someone who's in her 50s, mother, professor, with a great career, a great life, big surfer, apparently, uh, goes down to the waves at Santa Cruz all the time.
1: Whatever that is. What, uh,
2: well, just that she's a well rounded, oh. normal person, but very credible. Why would you make this up?
1: By the way, uh, there are reports of multiple victims in a shooting at a Rite Aid distribution center in Baltimore. There is a media briefing scheduled at 1145, and we'll obviously keep you abreast of that.
2: Okay, we are talking about what else the uh, Kavanaugh hearings, what's going to happen. We're going to keep talking about that until the top of the hour. Our number is 877-301-8970. You can tweet us at Boss Public Radio or email us at bpr at org.
1: Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process, going over the latest developments, and asking if you support the GOP's push to get him onto the court, even if there is no FBI investigation, as Professor Ford is seeking, and as the Republicans say there will not be, should the Senate Judiciary Committee do due diligence and thoroughly investigate. Ford's accusations against him or just move ahead next week, 877-301-8970. You know, one thing I also don't understand, I, it, am I right in saying Chuck Todd said to us a few minutes ago, he doesn't think there is going to be a hearing. And so- he does not. So if there, one, well, I don't understand how a hearing works if there is one, as I say, because who presents her side to which Kavanaugh would respond, which would argue there won't be a hearing. And if there's not a hearing, how do Republican senators get up and say, I am convinced that Brett Kavanaugh- didn't do this when one, she never got to testify. And two, he never got to publicly testify saying he didn't do it. He just told them individually, like he told a lot of them. Or he's quoted in the newspapers. How, how does that even work? Well,
2: I guess the uh, that what the basic message is that we've crossed a new threshold. That when you have a president of the United States who's been credibly accused by almost twenty women of sexual harassment, including a bunch of teenage girls at a beauty pageant, that you know what the hell? Why not have another accused sexual harasser on the Supreme Court? That's basically the message of what they think about uh, women's claims about uh, sexual harassment. And by the but way, but they need to
1: get fifty out of fifty. If there are no Dems, they need to get fifty. Out of 51 Republicans, all but one – and then the tie can be broken by Mike Pence, who's the president of the Senate. Is that possible that only one Republican, if that, would break ranks? Maybe not even saying I think Kavanaugh is guilty, but that I can't vote yes on his nomination without a thorough investigation having done by the FBI. There aren't two Republicans willing to do that? I mean that is really – it's hard for me to believe.
2: Okay, here's um, Art from the other side. Yep. Uh, when I was just talking about uh, Christine Blasey Ford, he says just a normal, well-rounded woman suffering from Trump derangement syndrome who figures that since it's he said, she said from 30 years ago, and the FBI won't be able to prove or disprove it, there's no downside to calling for an FBI investigation.
1: Well, a lot of people believe that. I think a lot of people believe the downside,
2: that. The downside, Art, is that her life is never going to be the same. She's had to move out of her house She's had to hire private security. She can't live with her children. Uh, they're afraid to go to school, carrying on with their life. And she's got, um, you know, these white supremacist website people trolling her and torturing her. So that, that's the downside.
1: Uh, Nancy and Ashford, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling in. Hi.
2: Hi, guys. Um, First of all, you've got to
5: start remembering me. I'm a frequent caller. Hello again. My feelings are hurt.
1: Hello again, Nancy. How's that?
5: (laughs) Thank you. That's good. Okay. I think what needs to be repeated over and over, something people have been skirting around and saying indirectly, who
4: has the greatest incentive to lie? Who does? Obviously, um, uh, Kavanaugh.
1: And
4: anybody
5: that looks at it should be able to see the negative consequences on Ford and what Kavanaugh is trying to defend. And if we just keep saying over and over, who has the greater incentive to lie? It's what a friend of mine said. It's been in the New York Times, so I can't take credit for it. But
0: who has the greater incentive to lie?
1: Now, Nancy, before you go, I want you to listen to this carefully. Thank you for calling again, Nancy. (laughs) Is that okay? (laughs)
2: I made you feel guilty. (laughs) (laughs) Nancy, thanks for your
1: call. We appreciate it. Sure,
2: you're
0: welcome.
2: I mentioned to Jim this morning that there's a great story in the Washington Post. I don't know if the timing was intentional or not, talking about the rape of a 16-year-old in a high school in Texas. And it gives some understanding of the dynamics of these kind of cases where, um, once again, it was the victim that was put on trial and basically driven out of town on a rail with just gross um, attacks on her that that's what happens i don't know what the dynamic is but for some reason we are incredibly hostile towards women who accuse men of sex crimes we just we just don't want to acknowledge it we don't want to admit it and we think that we can look at men and see which ones are guilty of this kind of thing i have heard a million times well i i know i i know clarence thomas he couldn't do this I People said, uh, R- Roger Eales in, in, at Fox, all these women said, I've worked with Roger Eales for years. He's never done anything like this. It's as if they don't learn anything from the priests. You know, oh my goodness, Father Gagan was a wonderful guy. He was a wonderful pastor at St. Julia's parents Parish. How could he possibly, he looked like a little Irish elf. How could he possibly have raped dozens and dozens of little boys and little girls? We don't learn anything, and we never ask ourselves, why are we so hostile? You know, why is Art accusing this woman of being guilty of trunch- Trump derangement syndrome? If that were the case, Art, I should be saying <laughs> that that Kavanaugh attacked me on a surfboard out in Santa Cruz.
1: You know, and also I want to reiterate the point you've made ad nauseum, but it, it, it is – Incredibly important. Again, even though it's been made a lot of times, primarily by you, is there's no other alleged crime. No other. No alleged other crime. alleged crime. Where the first place that a significant part of the population goes to is She's the accuser lying. is lying. I know exactly. it's just there's no question about it.
2: My, my classic example: if ten people said, if ten different clerks at Seven Eleven said Jim Browdy came in and 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 robbed them at the at the counter. 10 different people said this, Jim Brady would be hauled into Suffolk Superior Court or in your case I guess Middlesex Superior Court mm-hmm. and charged with crimes. But if 10 women who don't even know each other say You're the totally same right. things totally right. about men in the Less Moonves case that he grabbed my head and and shoved it into his crotch I don't think Les Moonves would have survived for all these years. as the head of a Fortune 500 company making $69 million a year and now hoping he's going to get a $100 million golden kiss on the way out the door.
1: Stephen in Akari You're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for your patience. Hi.
4: How patience I have, especially for you guys. <laughs> Thank you very um, much. One of, I remember Nita Hill, and I remember uh, Clarence Thomas. <laughs> Uh, and one of the only good things about remembering back to 91 and before that is you can also remember things from Emily Dickinson, who talked about small things in rather small poems that might have seemed childish if they weren't so right on in terms of the truth and in terms of a, a savage demand for the truth. And one of the things that bothered me when I watched Judge Kavanaugh on television, and this is a little thing, but I urge people to look at these little things. There was a, a pregnant moment. There was a moment. There was a lot of disruptions in the world. But there was a man, I forget exactly who it was, who came up very bravely and extended his hand towards that man of great privilege and, I think, of great hubris. Um, He would get into any social club to which he applied, I guarantee. I wouldn't write a letter. But the thing is that he looked at that man with a sense, a visible sense of shock and horror, and he turned from that man. Do
1: you know who the man was, uh, Stephen?
4: Yes, uh, his son. He had lost a child. Was killed. Was killed, yes and for me it was a poignant moment because when i watch someone who has had an extraordinary privileged life um turn away i have a sense of emily dickinson's certain slant of light and it's not a an attractive pretty slant of light it would have shown me that he had an openness that he was willingness yeah. right there and then to listen can i just say in
1: in in all i happen to be with you by the way the guy's name was uh, i can't remember his first name gutenberg his his uh, kid was uh, killed in, uh, in in parkland uh, his daughter not his son i think yep, that's but right. but uh, but in um, on in fairness to Kavanaugh, when he finally responded to questions recently uh, about the issue you raised his contention i'm not vouching for him, I'm just repeating it, is that he thought that the man who was seeking to shake his hand was a protester. He said that if he had... How do you know, well, let me just finish. Again, I'm not vouching for him. I'm just saying it. Had he known that Gutenberg was the father of a shooting victim at Parkland, he says he would have uh, shaken his hand. But Stephen, thank you for bringing Emily Dickinson well, to the... May, I co- oh, thing, sure. Sure. Can I just say one thing, Jim?
4: Sure. Just one thing. Sure. Real quick. Um, I, think we, I think when we see people who have a generosity of spirit and an openness, and they're willing to look at, understand, and confront? I want that person, man or woman, on that court.
2: That's a great Got point, it. Stephen. Thanks. That's a great point, Stephen.
1: Plus, the Dickinson reference made you happy, so that was a two for kind of. <laughs> Let's call. go
2: to Tim and Newton. Hi,
1: Tim. Hello, Tim. Hey, guys! Thanks for having me on. Awesome show as always. Sure.
4: Thanks. Um, the color just before made a really great point. That 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 moment just
5: it really stuck with me. Um, and no matter, no matter who the person was, no matter what it was like in the courtroom, just that look on his face, um, it just bugged me. But I think that uh, what's become apparent is that there needs to be a third party, in my opinion. There has to be a legitimate third party. When senators on the, on, on the right know that they know in their heart of
4: hearts they do not want to vote for this man, but they have to. They don't have a choice in the same way, nobody wanted to vote for Hillary and nobody wanted to vote for
1: Donald, but so we had no choice. Got to be oh, it's him. We're Tim, losing you. Yeah,
2: it's a bad connection. What Tim
1: said in the second half of the call is that when nobody really wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton or for Donald Trump, and for those who don't remember that, I know that there are people who are offended who like Trump or like Clinton. As we've said only 10,000 times, they were the two least popular candidates uh, in the history of polling in American presidential Elections with Hillary Clinton being a little less uh, disliked than uh, Donald Trump was in those polls.
2: Jake from Beverly. Hi, Jake.
1: Hi, Jake. Hey, guys. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. So I, I believe Dr. Ford,
4: and um, I think she's a very credible accuser. I just don't understand why she won't testify on Monday. Um, I don't see what she has to lose. Uh, definitely an FBI investigation would be the better alternative, but I think if she doesn't testify, it makes it very easy for Republican senators to say, well, you know, she wouldn't come and defend what she, uh, what she said. She wouldn't defend her accusations. Uh, so, in you know, without any more information, I'm going to vote for Kavanaugh.
1: By the way, I think um, this – I completely agree with the second half of what you're saying. That's what it allows them to say. What her lawyers have said is – are two things. Uh, one, that she needs more time to prepare. It's not just like you go tell your story. You're going to be shredded and, or attempted to be shredded Kavanaugh by the Republican senators.
2: has not only – Coached for weeks for his hearings, he has been nonstop coached in the White House in these recent well, days. Well, he's also Jake. had
1: other confirmation hearings, so he's experienced this before. And
2: plus, he's a judge. Plus, so he's had, he's he's got her like a hundred to one in terms of uh, uh, experience.
1: And the second thing, I, I think, even though uh, I, I think you make a decent, again, a very decent point about the political impact, at least short-term impact, is uh, uh, without an independent third law enforcement voice. Like the FBI, it is likely to end up with a he said, she said kind of thing. And I guess her position, I surely don't want to speak for her, but I assume this is a fair statement, is that she believes having an independent voice who actually investigates, since she says she's telling the truth, will help cause the balance to be in her direction. Having said that, I agree. If there's a hearing, and Chuck Todd doesn't think there will be a hearing, if there's a hearing, and Kavanaugh is the only one there, It's easy for the Grassleys and others to say, we asked her to come. We wanted her to come. We provided a forum. She refused. Now, obviously, the Democrats will respond to that, but that is what they'll say.
2: But the third thing is, to me, is the risk of the degradation and humiliation she could endure at the hands of, uh, in in a couple of cases at least, very elderly men who don't know anything about – Uh, sexual harassment or sexual violence who are stuck back in the kind of 1920s and uh, will ask, who knows? I mean, Orrin Hatch has already said totally inappropriate things, and he disgraced himself at the Anita Hill hearings, and it doesn't seem he's grown in his uh, knowledge of the subject matter
1: in 27 years. Jake, thanks for the call. Diana, we only have a minute left. It's yours. Welcome.
0: Hi, I just want to point out there is no statute of limitation in the state of Maryland and the prosecutor, a prosecutor there is inviting her. I think she should threaten to uh, press charges against him for attempted rape if they don't allow the FBI
6: investigation.
1: Well, Marjorie mentioned earlier that the the lack of a statute of limitations on this kind of case. What you added, which I was not aware of, is that the prosecutor has actually invited her to come in, assuming that's true. It's a pretty important development. Thanks for sharing it with us, Diana. We appreciate your uh, time. We'll obviously uh, stay on top of this throughout the day, as will our colleagues after we are done at two o'clock. Ten o'clock is the deadline tomorrow, according to uh, Chairman Grassley, for her to agree to testify, to submit written testimony, uh, without which he says she will not come on Monday. Will there actually be a hearing? Uh, There are a lot of questions yet to be resolved with what is it it's today, Thursday, Thursday, and obviously today Mondays Thursday. are far, far way away.
2: That is right. Who knows what could happen between now and Monday. But coming up, we're going to talk to former Suffolk County Sheriff Andrew Gabral for a segment of Law and Order. We'll talk to her a little bit about the Kavanaugh case, but we'll also talk about an incredible story about the Red Sox oh, banner. This is the
1: best. The best.
2: <laughs> mysteriously disappearing and then equally mysteriously being found as well as... Quite a story about an inmate artist and his photographs of, not photographs, his paintings of golf courses. All that's coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH.
1: noon on today's Boston Public Radio, the top official at ICE is doubling down on his comments that the immigration detention centers are like summer camps, even though there is reporting they're unusually cold, there have been documented instances of abuse, and the American Academy of Pediatrics says detention can cause psychological trauma and long-term mental health risks. Talk to Andrew Cabral about this and more on today's edition of Law & Order.
2: WGBH Executive Arts Editor Jared Bowen is here with a take on Hamilton and the latest arts and a culture controversy around town then we talked to mark libovich known for his coverage of politics for the new york times he thought he was making a departure by writing about the nfl but it turns out football is as clubby and swampy as dc his book is loaded with great gossip and details so stick around to find out why bob craft really loves eating organic eggs that more is next on boston public radio
1: I am Marjorie Egan because she just walked in the studio. I have. Oh, there and she is, Jim the real Marjorie Egan. And
2: welcome to the second hour of Boston Public Radio, 897 WGBH. Hello again, Jim.
1: Join us online. Hi, Marjorie. How are you? Joining us online for another edition of Law and Order is Andrew Cabral. Andrew is the former Suffolk County Sheriff and the former Secretary of Public Safety and the current CEO of Ascend. Andrew Cabral, good to talk to you.
2: Good to talk to you both. Andrea, we have just spent about 40 minutes talking with listeners, well, actually almost an hour because we talked to Chuck Todd about the Kavanaugh case. We wanted to get your quick two cents before we move on on to other law and order topics. What do you make of it?
0: I think it's um, insane that uh, we're in a position where the United States Senate is forcing a confirmation process, rushing and hurrying a confirmation process, in the face of uh, negative information about the nominee, which ordinarily would be the subject of an FBI uh, investigation by way of a background check, that they're rushing this process uh, not just in the face of that, but in the face of the actual um, person who alleges to have been victimized by this nominee calling for the FBI's intervention. And they're just ignoring all of it and demanding that she come before them. They won't interview any other witnesses. They want it to be um, what they keep calling a he said, she said, which bothers me tremendously, um, that phraseology for that. They want to be in the position of being able to say they can discount her testimony before them. And it's a shameful um, low point. We keep saying that this is a low point. That's a low point. This is yet another low point uh, for the legislative branch in the way that they deal with um, Donald Trump's nominees to the judiciary.
1: Why do you object to that? I, I just said she said he said myself a couple of minutes ago. So if I am going to be chastened, I want to know why. What That is what it becomes if it essentially is her word against his without uh, an independent investigation, isn't it?
0: Well, A, it should be she said, he said, because she's the one that's coming forward with this information. Um, So the he said, she said part is sort of a – it's more – it evokes the real balance of power versus what is actually happening. So I think that's part of why why it bothers me. But they can't credibly call it um, a search for the truth if they limit the information that they're willing to consider – in order to find that. No investigation does that. Not a criminal investigation, not a civil trial, not any proceeding where uh, the truth uh, inside of, or outside of court, where the truth is the, supposed to be the end game, ever cuts off the amount of information that, that uh, the fact finder can have before herself or himself uh, to, to reasonably conclude uh, where the truth lies. And that's exactly what they're doing.
1: So we're talking. They're, rigging
0: to... it. They're essentially rigging the process. Can is... we
1: talk to... We're talking to Andrew Cabral. Can we move just from the sublime to the ridiculous? I have to say, uh, yeah. I've been doing this for 20 years. Or the
0: horrific to
2: the ridiculous. There are
1: some great sound bites. This one might be in the top 10 ever. There are two Molden guys, Louis, I hope I pronounce that, Ayakuzi, and James Amaral who yesterday were saying there's been a little change in the story. They hope to receive some sort of compensation from the Red Sox, maybe a ticket or two, maybe meet a player or two, because on the McGrath Highway they're just driving along and they happen to find the 2018 Red Sox division title banner. They haven't won the championship yet in the division, but they're about to today or tomorrow, whatever. Uh, Here is what the uh, two of them, Louie and James, a part of what they had to say yesterday
4: we hoping they do the right thing. Yep. You know, we did the right thing. We could have kept it. We could have put it on eBay. We
7: could have, you know, we got connections where we could have reached out to other sources. We're big supporters
4: of the Red Sox. And we want to see them win and we want this banner to go back on
2: Lansdowne Street or wherever it belongs.
1: And James Emerald went on to say, we're working too. I mean, my man had to run across <laughs> three lanes of traffic to get this thing. Well, it turns out that their uh, desire to be compensated for their uh, wonderful uh, act of uh, public spiritedness uh, has dissipated a bit. Apparently, they returned it. Now, as someone who's been in the criminal justice field for a long time, how credible did you find their story that it fell off a truck on the McGrath it fell Highway? Fell off a truck. There, uh, Andrew Cabral.
0: Yeah. I, I tend to think that's, um, <clears throat> that's a little suspicious. I mean, uh, also, the, you know they're driving on McGrath-O'Brien Highway and pull over and run across three exactly. lanes of traffic to retrieve this thing without being hit. I mean, anybody who's been on McGrath-O'Brien Highway knows that that is, at best, a risky proposition. So I don't know exactly where this banner came from, but I, my, as, a, as a former prosecutor, I would be looking for the exact area that they said that they uh, retrieved it from, and I would be looking at any businesses or any public surveillance cameras, and I'd be getting the footage. That would be my first go-to to see whether or not, based on the story they're telling, that that actually happened in that time, and in, in that space as they've described it. But it, you know, the Red Sox are probably not overly interested. In um, that, because the the situation has been resolved, but that was my reaction as a prosecutor to
1: it. You know, uh, I just uh, we rarely do this, but I think the sound is so fine. Do you mind, Marjorie, if we oh, listen to it just again. one more no, time? Absolutely. These are this is Louis Iacuzzi because we'll never get to hear By the way, two quite like this. And James Amaral, What?
2: By the way, one quick thing too that's yeah. so crazy about them running across the three yeah. lines of traffic—they didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't know what it was. It was just something that people supposedly were serving to point. avoid. I think any one of us—who among us? Andrea has not seen some odd thing in the roadway. Stop the car. Stop the car and run race across cr- three lanes. Exactly. I, certainly, I do that every day.
1: So here is Iacuzzi <laughs> and Amaral just one more time. Here they are.
2: We're hoping they do the right thing. Yep. You no, know, we did the right
4: thing. We could have kept it, we could have put it on eBay. We could, you know, we got
7: connections where we could have reached out to other sources. We're a big supporters of the Red Sox,
4: and we want to see them win. And we want this banner to go back on Lansdowne Street or
1: wherever it belongs. You know, the beauty of the—I love every line—is great. We could have put it on eBay. <laughs> we got connections. Know. We know people. It's just—it's almost like a movie, right. Uh, right. essentially. In any case, no,
0: it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's awful. I mean, they really, honestly, you know, the, it's the whole thing is is, is is just, you know, it's pretty bad. It's sort of like saying, you know, hey, I found your car, um, oh, with the keys in it, uh, in a part of town I'm not going to tell you about, and I want to do the right thing, but if you want to get your car back, you know, you're gonna have to—you're gonna have to do something. You're gonna have to pony up some money. I don't—I don't know how they thought they were going to get away with this. That's the. You know they're dealing with the Red Sox organization, um, and I just don't know how they thought publicly saying something like, "Look, if they try to put up a second banner, you better believe we're going to be out there holding up the original to tell people it's not the original banner." And I'm thinking, it, to what end? Like, <laughs> by the what way, exactly do you think would be accomplished There's some breaking by that? news.
1: We just the Associated Press is reporting that uh, Chuck Grassley has ordered an FBI investigation of the banner stealing from... The <laughs> Red Sox. So as soon as they complete that, there Got will be. Got me all
0: excited. I knew there.
1: we're talking to Andrew Cabral. I
0: know, really. I thought you were going to say something no. real. So did I. Well, there
1: may be. A sh- I. I don't think this story is over yet in terms of. But Kavanaugh. Andrea,
2: I want you to know one of our regular emailers, Robert, just emailed to say he would love to see Andrew Cabral questioning Judge <laughs> Kavanaugh. So there you go, vote of support from Robert. <laughs> so
0: I. I wouldn't. I would love to do I that bet you myself. Would.
2: So, um, Andrew Cabral, people may recall that uh, Yarmouth Police Officer Sean Gannon and Auburn Officer Ronald Tarantino were both killed in the line of duty um, by people who had very long criminal records. I I think this is what is behind Governor Baker's uh, legislation that would revamp the so-called dangerousness statute, which allows judge to keep uh, criminal defendants um, awaiting trial behind bars if they are deemed to be dangerous to the community.
1: That was initiated by Bill Weld, was it not? I, it I'm was pretty, pretty sure. It was initiated by
2: Bill Weld after a guy uh, who got out of prison, went out to California and killed this young couple. I remember that. There was a big uproar over that uh, case. But anyway, um, what do you make of this?
0: Well, I think it'll be interesting to see uh, what the bill looks like um, by the time it gets through the House and the Senate um, if it gets to the House and Senate and the conference committee, what you know what things are added, what things are, are taken out, um, you know essentially, I agree with the idea that that uh, prosecutors should be able to hold a dangerousness hearing at any point during the process. So the way I. the statute was originally uh, the way it exists now and the way it was originally written was that you know, you had to do it at arraignment, and quite frankly, at arraignment is the point in the proceeding at which you know. You may know a lot about a particular uh, crime or a particular defendant, but it's the least you'll know, usually, th- given what you know by the end of a proceeding. So it makes sense to be able to do it um, at any point. The only the concern that I have is, um, A, I think the story's wrong in terms of saying that uh, for the first time under this bill, uh, judges would be able to consider a criminal history. Judges have always been able to consider a person's criminal history in a dangerousness hearing. I'm not quite sure why the, um, why the story says that. But the thing that concerns me is, um, I, and I understand why Governor Baker is, co- is sort of couching this in terms of uh, the deaths of police officers, but those are the kind of visceral, you know, they say hard cases make bad law. If, you, if you're going to revamp the dangerousness um, law, it can't, you can 't have people having sort of a visceral reaction to the deaths of police officers, and the fact that he 's included assault and battery on a police officer, which is a felony as one of the um, one of the crimes that can be considered, troubles me because people get charged with assault and battery on a police officer for shoving a police officer or allegedly shoving a police officer. Um, uh, you know, and, and so I worry about that as being a trigger for a dangerousness hearing. I think what I would have preferred is if the legislation had included, as David Nathanson says, some backup data. Look at the data first. See how frequently the dangerousness uh, statute is being used by prosecutors currently, what kinds of crimes um, are most used to trigger a dangerousness hearing. See what the data tells you and let the data, because the, da- the numbers will lead you to the places that you know, really are going to enhance public safety. Um, and I don't know that there was any data sort of uh, backing this up, and I always worry when the genesis of a bill, even if it, is, it contains some common sense provisions and some parts of it are reasonable, if, if part of the genesis of a bill is uh, an emotional reaction to a tragic event, versus a more careful and uh, critically thought-out reaction to an overall uh, pattern in the courts or an overall need in public safety. That that sort of troubles me, so I wish that that had been done.
2: Yeah, that, Andrea. That there,
0: are, there are parts of the bill that I agree with.
2: Andrea, you were used to do domestic violence stuff when you were a Suffolk County prosecutor. One of the areas, it seems to me, where there need to be, and this is just you more, know more than I do, uh, dangerousness hearings is in domestic violence cases because um, we all remember that terrible case, Jerry Remy's son that had... Jared uh, Remy. Uh, Jared Remy's son. Jared Remy was his son, that's yeah. right, who had uh, beaten and attacked several girlfriends before he ultimately killed the mother of his child. Uh, he had a long history. And in a lot of these domestic violence cases, you know, the guy goes in post bail and he's right back out again and you've got a woman who is back cowering in the apartment somewhere or in hiding.
0: Well what you, you know violation of a restraining order is one of the specifically enumerated crimes under the current fifty eight a that can trigger a dangerousness hearing. Um, sometimes you know in the ca- in that particular case, I think there was um, some miscommunication or some kind of an issue. Um, that didn't trigger it in, in uh, Remy's particular case but that that is available that's what I mean when I say the data look and see you know there there is information out there to let you know exactly how frequently this statute is currently being used and for what crimes so you can sort of figure out whether it's underused or overused and if you're going if you're going to file legislation to enhance it maybe there are things you learn from the data that cause you to pull back on some of its current provisions. You know, um, and I, it's difficult because we want the criminal justice system to constantly be right. And the other thing that gets mis- that goes missing in a lot of these things, we try to we use legislation as a talisman against our fears of what will happen to us um, in terms of being victims of a crime, and that's just not possible. There is, there is a weighing of risk in every single thing the criminal justice system does. There, is, there are ways to mitigate that risk, but people have to accept that there are sometimes not going to be adequate reasons to seek a particular remedy, especially one like this, which requires a, a specific finding that there are no conditions, none short of incarceration that will protect the, the public from this particular person. That's, a, that's kind of a high standard for a judge to have to uh, make a finding on sometimes that that risk is going to exist, and sometimes people are going to act on that and and terrible things are going to happen. I just want us to be careful about not um, legislating from a more visceral
1: yeah I, want, uh, I, place. I I have a few things for you on this, but before I do, just for a, a piece of history, didn't Jared Remy from prison prior to conviction write to you did he not no, he did in a fairly threatening no, way to, to did he to not Marjorie? To Marjorie, yeah, to me, yeah. I, didn't he? I forget
2: he? what he said. I yeah. don't think it was a nice letter.
1: Yeah. In any case, uh, uh, I, I have a couple of things for you, though. When you talk, for example, at your concern, Andrew Cabral, about uh, including, it, in terms of the criteria for a dangerousness hearing to be initiated, uh, assault and battery and a police officer, and sometimes assault and battery is, I know you don't mean minor, like it's nothing, but it's not, you know, pushing as opposed to uh, what we would ordinarily consider assault and battery. It, Having a right to have a dangerousness hearing doesn't mean that a judge is required to hold the person. It just means that it triggers the ability to have one. And if the underlying offense that caused the dangerousness hearing to be had is one that a someone might argue was – as minor, and I use the term minor in quotes so you don't send me angry emails out there, is pushing a police officer rather than punching him or her, that sort of thing, then a judge would say, I deny the request to hold him. Isn't that what's likely to happen?
0: Right, and prosecutors will make a decision based on the enumerated facts of the particular felony. I'm just, I'm saying, I'm cautious around things like this. Um, And I'm cautious whenever we expand the law to include – it doesn't mean that I ultimately think that it ought not to be expanded. I'm just cautious in my approach to it. And what I was saying is that the cumulative effect of um, the tragic deaths of these police officers being so prominently considered in expanding this law, which generally – and this law applies uh, well beyond um, things that result in the death of police officers – I'm just urging, um, I always urge caution when you have the power through legislation to drastically change um, a particular thing in the criminal justice system.
1: Can, yeah, I just say, can I just say one last thing here? I I just fear, as we're having this long discussion about a really important topic, that a lot of people may not even understand the underlying thing. Please correct me if I'm wrong in this 20-second summary. Prior to this dangerousness uh, hearing legislation filed by Governor Weld, uh, the only criterion for holding on the part of a judge was the likelihood of returning to court on their court date, right? Is that not – and this expanded the – the breadth of things that a judge could consider when he or she was deciding whether to hold somebody. That was the genesis of this, right?
0: Yes. Yes. That's essentially true. Okay. The, the You could consider fa- other factors, but it was basically about whether or not a, a defendant would return to court versus, versus whether or not, if they were released, they pose a danger right. to the, the community if released.
1: Great. We're talking to Andrew Cabral, former sheriff of Suffolk County, former secretary of public safety.
2: Well, let's go to now a horrible story with a happy ending. Tell us about this Valentino Dixon uh, whose uh, life sentence, a um, uh, uh, 39 to life sentence for murder, was overturned after he started drawing pictures of golf courses.
0: Yeah, this is a this is a really fascinating story, and it was um, none other than Golf Digest. I know, it's yes! unbelievable. that actually that that actually you know sort of pulled a lot of things together, um, and and ultimately it was a lot of really good work by a lot of other people as well, that resulted in a guy who had been uh, convicted of murder when he was uh, 21, I think, um, in the early 90s and uh, had gotten a 39-year-to-life sentence right. resulted in him ultimately being uh, released. I mean, he, he's, a, he's a tremendous artist, and he, even though he's never played the game, his name is Valentino Dixon, he's never played the game of golf, um, but he's, was also faci- he was always fascinated by the tranquility and the, um, the layout and the architecture of golf courses. He drew them. And a warden, he was sentenced to Attica, um, which is a notorious, Uh, uh, prison Um, and he a warden who golfs, asked him to draw a golf course I think that he probably had a photograph I think he draws them from photographs and liked it very very much and this this Dixon just drew these things all the time they're beautifully laid out and incredibly incredibly detailed and it took a while but eventually they he got the attention of Golf Digest and Golf Digest Um, was sort of fascinated by his ability to draw these gorgeous uh, golf courses. And once they they profiled him in Golf Digest, and then they began to look at his conviction, which even on its face um, uh, seemed very shaky. And ultimately what was discovered was that um, not only had someone else confessed to the shooting uh, that resulted in the death of of, of, uh, a particular uh, individual, but there were lots of other problems. He had a defense attorney that never called a single witness. Um, there, were, uh, there was evidence of, of some coercion of witnesses by police. There were a number of problems with this. And so ultimately, between golf Digest efforts, those of two uh, attorneys who took the case pro bono, some Georgetown University students, his family members, particularly, I think uh, it was either his sister or his daughter, that really sort of did a go- I think she did sort of a goFundme. Uh, campaign to help fund his defense. He was ultimately uh, uh, released, but he's now 42 years old. He has spent half of his life in prison for uh, something for a crime he did not commit. Um, but he was ultimately released as a result of all of these efforts, and it shows you the power the power of art and and people's people's uh, willingness to do good. But it's a fascinating story, and he seems like a, he seems like it seems like this art has kept him sane all these years, uh, in Attica. And, um, he says, you know, he's not, he's not a bitter person, which I applaud him for. Cause I don't think I could say that if, if it were me. Um, but he's, uh, he's, he's out. He's, uh, he's been released, which is a good thing.
1: You know, one, I want to add one entity to the list of those who you say worked for his release. And I hope I get this right. And if I got it right, it was amazing to me. The story mentions that, uh, um, It says, Golf Dodger, I'm reading from it, Uh, Golf Dodger's work eventually was eclipsed by the recent report filed by the Erie County District Attorney's Wrongful Convictions Unit, which is a new type of department popping up in various districts these ways. A wrongful conviction unit in an entity that convicts people. For crimes. I mean, talk about enlightened criminal justice. This is an aberration, right? I assume most district attorney's offices do not have a wrongful convictions unit that looks into whether or not their prosecutions were ill advised. Do they or do they?
0: No, I, I don't think most do. Suffolk County does. Does? Um, I think they're growing I didn't know that. in that. Po- yeah, Suffolk County does. Wow. Yeah, so um, they're growing in popularity. Um, and more district attorneys um, are recognizing uh, sort of an affirmative obligation um, to review old convictions where the, the, you know, the, the quality or the reliability of that conviction mm-hmm. has been called into question. And here what you had was um, there had been an Erie County DA who had been there for a very long time who, stri- who based on what I'm reading about him, um, clearly thought that there weren't enough convictions um, that there were too many wrongful acquittals. He, he's no longer in Erie County. He was replaced by a guy named John Flynn, um, who was in the job for about a year, and um, it was under his leadership that uh, Dixon was released. So he was clearly making use of that. But no, the, every, every DA's office, any DA's office that does, uh, especially any DA's office that does homicides, that all of them do should have a wrongful conviction unit.
1: I'll tell you, the investigative work by Golf Digest is really going to change the criminal justice system. they got a
2: spotlight, golf spotlight team over there. really yeah. is
1: unbelievable.
2: They're really to be applauded. Are yeah, they ever? Amazing.
1: You are totally right. Hey, Andrea, it's great to talk to you as always. Thanks.
2: Thank you so much, Andrea Cabral. All right. Uh, coming up. Bye-bye. Uh, bye-bye. Uh, we are going to talk to uh, Jared Bowen, but first I want to thank Andrea Cabral. She joins us every week. She's the former Suffolk County Sheriff and Secretary of Public Safety and current CEO of Ascend. Up next, Hamilton hits Boston. Does it live up to the hype? WGBH executive arts editor Jared Bowen joins us for that. And a controversy involving a little Falmouth museum. He's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. In 2015, Hamilton made its Broadway debut. Obama was president. The musical's dominant theme celebrated immigrants, democracy, and the American experiment had a specific resonance. Today, in Trump's America, those themes resonate for entirely different reasons. This year, it launched its second national tour, which brings it to the Boston Opera House. So after crisscrossing the country and even the Atlantic for a spin in London's West End, does it still hold up? and live up to the hype. GBH's executive arts editor, Jared Bowen, apparently would know. He saw it on Broadway, and last night, he was at the Boston Opera House. I was doing my laundry. He joins us for this (laughs) and his review of other arts and culture events in and around town. Hey there, Jared Bowen. Good afternoon.
2: Okay, so you saw it in Boston, Hamilton. What's your take?
7: I did. It is masterful, and it's magisterial. It it really is. Uh, And I I think I had mentioned the the last time I, I had seen it, I was skeptical, because I've seen thousands of performances over the years, and I thought, is this something that has just been hyped to oblivion? And it's not, because it's unbelievably inventive and revolutionary as a musical. So let's take us through what what the musical is about. It is Len Manuel Miranda writing about Alexander Hamilton. He's an immigrant from the West Indies, comes to the U.S. He's viewed as dim. He's an orphan. He's an immigrant who must prove his worth. He's scrappy and hungry and not about to throw away his shot to be part of the American Revolution, and then later to be part of the American experiment that is happening in terms of creating this democracy. Uh, and so- By the way,
1: can I interrupt you? I want to say, since you mentioned his shot, why don't we enliven the festivities with a little clip from my shot, obviously, from Hamilton.
7: I am not thrown away my shot. I am not thrown away my shot. Yeah, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. College, I probably should brag. The gag, I'm and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got a holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough, a shining piece of coal trying to reach my goal. My power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my
1: mind. in is... yeah, my sense, Marjorie, is if we ever got to Soul, we'd probably like it. <laughs> so, you know, what? you know
2: what? May I just say something that is incredible about this musical? That you can hear every word. You know, so many times you go to a musical and it's oh hard. My God. It's true. They enunciate every single.
7: <laughs> word. That's a big deal. Well, and I think it's in the writing. It, it, it. There are so many reasons that this show works, and let me just say on a a wide spectrum, it's because everything works. The costumes, the lighting, the set design, the choreography, which is just completely mesmerizing and exquisite, especially as they're rendering Revolutionary War battles, rather. Uh, But you just heard this, the recording from the Broadway cast album, just as good here, but it's the way Lin Manuel Miranda writes, which is he takes this very dense history uh, and, and, and offers so many layers, and he does it musically through rap and through hip-hop and r&b and slight allusions to show tunes that i heard last night that i had never heard before i mean this was one of the great discoveries for me is to be there again and to realize how much i had actually missed the first time because there is so much that's happening wonderfully at once
2: which show tunes
7: uh, you're putting me on the spot, but okay. it's more, you know, periods of music okay. that he refers to uh, through the various characters' voices. But you also have to remember, Lin Manuel Miranda won the Pulitzer Prize in Drama for this in 2016. What also captured my attention last night was the end of this show. And it's almost as if you are listening to Shakespeare for the poetry, for the cadence, and and how he uses language. The man is absolutely brilliant. And and let alone the fact that he's taking this massive Ron Cherno book that he lugged on vacation and saw this story that could surface. And then completely upends it because we think of the founding fathers as these white men creating, uh, making history. But he changes it, and for the most part, we're seeing black and Latino actors, and and few
1: white men on stage. God, we are the two biggest losers, Marjorie. I'm just thinking—we got to interview Ron Chernow. That's sort of close. Yes, he did. We got to interview his co- his uh, college roommate, that who did that great PBS thing. That's sort of close. I have watched the video, which is brilliant, of the first time he ever performed any of this. Remember at the White yes, House, yeah. and the look on Obama and and Michelle Obama's face. I mean, it was. But we haven't quite taken the final step. You well, know? I
2: think we – don't we have a mutual friend who is working on our behalf? She's not
1: Jim? offering me any tickets, but she <laughs> well, is, is – it? Well, can you compare – I mean, it, obviously, you say you saw more in it. Obviously, it's also a different time. I don't know if you – did you see it when Obama was still president or did you I, see it when Trump uh, was president? I was trying to, was to remember president?
7: that. I, I think I did see it when Obama was still well, president. Well, that's I different think it was in – so obviously,
1: context is a huge amount, right?
7: Absolutely, because it makes you – because this is all about – these men, and I will say that Lin-Manuel Miranda, not that they're a central focus, but he writes the women too and it's especially resonant when they say we're waiting for the sequel Thomas Jefferson and you kind of feel that the sequel is being fulfilled only maybe right now Uh, but uh, now, I, I just lost my point. That, oh. that doesn't happen. What were we talking about?
1: I have no idea. Who are you Well, again? The, point is, the
2: point is we should all go see it if we can get tickets. Oh, are you
1: kidding? I mean, can you imagine? Have you you know, have you know, ever – Oh, I know what I was going to say. Oh, and then I have something to say. Okay. I won't forget, as I will. But go ahead.
7: <laughs> I was going to say that uh, you're looking at what they were trying to do, and you think I, – I spent some time thinking after I was driving home – what would they think today? Of course, I think they would be happy at what we've become, but not entirely happy with the way America has turned out, but but that it's so palpable, their dreams, their vision for what society is.
1: You know, in the film that was made about it, I think the PBS film by his roommate, who was with Alex us, Horowitz, yeah. Yeah, right. It, it, they interview one of the late night hosts. Who, who's the late uh, night? Jimmy Fallon. Right, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon says exactly what I thought. Of course, he's seen it, and again, we haven't. He said, "Yeah, I'm always, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I'm always a, 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 Nervous about things that everybody says yes. is yep. the greatest thing ever. It never lives up to the hype. And again, that's a paraphrase. I have not spoken to one person. Ever, no, who said it doesn't live up? Whether it's Callie with her friends doing that wonderful excursion <laughs> to, to Chicago. Chicago for the yeah. day to see it. Have you spoken to anybody who didn't love this thing?
7: I, I spoke to one person, uh, who's a fam- Mike Pence, famous actor <laughs> who had some criticism. By and large, she loved it. Who, um, I, I can't tell you because Ooh. it was off the record, but Ooh. uh, that's the only person by and large, she loved it though. She, she had a couple of criticisms. Uh, by the way, I will say that for those people who think they can't get tickets, I did talk to Broadway in Boston last night, and I, I don't want to blow up expectations, but there are a select number of tickets that are released every single day, and there's also a lottery that happens.
1: So Chelsea to- won the lottery. Do you know that? Our leader won yeah. the lottery. Yeah. And I got for here in yeah, Boston? Yeah. Oh, wonderful. I and mean, I got uh,
2: tickets uh, for my children in New York um, through that a release of those tickets, all of a sudden they put them up and you can get them and seats together and everything, and they're they're the least expensive ones.
7: So you can either go to the Opera House, go to broadwayandboston.com, or go to Ticketmaster. Again, I don't want to blow up expectations. It's just a very select number, but there is still a chance to see the show.
1: We're talking to Jared Bowen, Executive Arts Editor here at GBH.
2: So um, I am dying to talk to you about what's happened in this uh, this in Falmouth, this place called Highfield Hall, where the uh, director of the exhibit hall there has canceled an exhibit by Sally Mavor. Uh, It contained political content. And what I read uh, is that he only wants political content that's nonpartisan. I don't know how that is possible.
7: All right. So, uh, And I am equally dying to talk to you about this because I think this is a really interesting and very important story, uh, which I first learned about uh, yesterday from um, the Falmouth Times. Uh, I saw the, the story on the capenews.net. It was sent to me. So here's a story. Highfield Hall and Gardens is a very small cultural institution in Falmouth. And they put on exhibitions, and they had been planning for a year, more than a year, to do an exhibition of fiber artists in which Sally Maver, Maver, uh, a fiber artist, would have her own show called Liberty and Justice, New Artwork by Sally Maver. And as a fiber artist, she, like a lot of other artists working today, have gravitated toward the more political because of the times in which we exist. So what she's done with her husband is she's, she creates these little dolls, these little fiber artist, uh, art dolls, uh, which are quite captivating, I have to say. And she created a film with her husband. You can go on YouTube to watch it, or you can go to her website, which is wefolkstudio.com. I think it's exceptionally well done, especially since this is the first time I've done it. And it's called Liberty and Justice, A Cautionary Tale in the Land of the Free. And what you find is basically Hansel and Gretel wandering through the woods, and uh, they start to follow these pretty pink signs, like huge and great again. Things are looking good where they're going, even though a shirtless Vladimir Putin is kind of following and lurking in the woods, watching them. Uh, Kellyanne Conway, well Welcomes into this candy sugared landscape, and then they end up in the the cottage, not unlike the witch in Hansel and Gretel that is uh, they 're welcomed into it by Melania and donald trump and Then you see these various iterations of Donald Trump as uh, notorious dictators and autocrats throughout history, including Adolf Hitler. So here's what happened. Sally Maver told the Highfield Hall and Museum, I spoke to both the museum and Sally Maver oh. actually this morning. Sally Maver told the museum about her political art as early as June. She advised them to take a look at the video. The executive director, Peter Franklin, did not do that. He admits he made a huge mistake. He only looked at the video about two weeks before the show was to start, and he basically thought this is inappropriate for our institution. It's too political. We cannot go forward with this it was broached with Sally uh, Maver. They asked her if she would be willing to withdraw her art. They posed the question, but basically she answered, there's nothing left if you take my political art out. So essentially she feels censored. So Highfield Hall and Garden said they did this for two reasons. They didn't invite anyone else to participate, so they didn't make it equal. They see this as a partisan issue. I challenged them on this. I I said, how do you see this as a partisan issue if you're talking about the president in, in a In his position, he kind of transcends parties at this point because he represents the country. They didn't necessarily have an answer for me on that, but they felt like they couldn't present one political perspective without presenting another. I also have questions about that. I mean, if you're going to have – if you're going to look for another voice, you're just going to drag anybody into the museum who might offer something else, somebody who hasn't spent a year creating this work. They also, and I do feel for the museum, they also pointed out that they leased the house from the town of Falmouth and they weren't sure of the town's views on bringing political voices into a town-owned structure. So that is their point of view. They, they realize that they were wrong. They be, don't believe they censored her. Uh, they believe they have to be careful. When you say
1: I, wrong, you mean that they hadn't vetted the thing earlier, right? That's what right, you mean wrong. Okay. Right.
7: Um, and as I said, they, they don't believe they censored her. Uh, and I've been there. I understand what a small museum, how they operate. They have a small staff. They have a small budget. They can't operate with the, the, the foresight and heft of a museum of fine arts, which weighs these issues regularly. As I said, I spoke to Sally Maver. She does see it as censorship. She also has sympathy for the Highfield Hall uh, because she has exhibited there before. But here's the great news. She says this has actually been really good. It's taken on a whole new life. As the story has spread on Facebook, she's had thousands of people write her from around the world. And now the New England Quilting Museum in Lowell is going to open a show of her work starting next week. and It will run through December. So her work is getting a platform after all. My concern here, and we've talked about this at various times uh, over my time with you, is how artists' voices are being constricted and how do you measure what the artistic point of view is with the politics of the day. And these small museums, which outnumber the larger museums in this country, if they feel that they're in a position where they can't allow artistic voices, where does that leave us?
2: And one last thing about this, all through art history, Correct me if I'm wrong, art has been political in, in many cases, challenging the powers that be.
7: It has, through plays, through yeah. exhibitions, through artwork. And, and Highfield Hall says we understand that, but we've never had to confront this before, and we realize now we never had a policy for it. They want to move forward. They want to meet with the town, although they have not set up a meeting yet. Um, but it's something they, they want to address.
1: And when is this thing going to open in Lowell? Uh, it opens next week. Oh, that's fabulous! Well,
7: and, that's, that... and I have to say, look at the film; it's really, go- really fun. I'm, I'm, I'm
2: going to look at it immediately. Well, not immediately because I'm on the radio now, that's but good I will. Point. <laughs> okay, um, let's let's talk about Glenn Close's new the movie, The Wife. We'll start with playing a little clip from the trailer. This is a movie about uh, Glenn Close, who plays the wife of a man who just won the Nobel Prize. Here's the clip.
4: I am aware of Joe's various indiscretions. His affairs have nothing to do with you. That's a deep-seated fear of
2: inadequacy. Don't paint me as a victim. I am much more interesting than that. Don't walk away from me, diamond! I can't do it anymore. I can't take it. I can't take the humiliation. You
4: have an occupation. I do.
5: And what is that?
2: I am a (laughs) kingmaker. Who? Ooh, <laughs> is it a good one?
7: It is good because from start to finish, Glenn Close is absolutely captivating in this She's film. Great. So you meet her, and uh, right away we understand that her husband, uh, Joe Castleman, has been awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. But she always has this sort of happy but muted response to him. This is based on, the, by the way, the 2003 novel by Meg Wolitzer. And he's invited to Stockholm, of course, for the ceremony. She goes, as does their son, who is just trying to get his father's approval, lurking in sort of the background. You just heard his voice as Christian Slater, who wants to be the biographer, who has questions about the work. But as the film progresses, you begin to wonder what her reaction is born of. And there are flashbacks. And you understand that she may have had more to do with her husband's success than anybody is acknowledging uh, and Glenn Close, there's a lot of Oscar talk for her. I Just give it. I, I haven't seen everything, but I feel like at this point you should give it to her because she's never won. And as I said, she's mesmerizing, start to finish.
1: Well, Why are you so into this? I mean, you have a look in your face. Because it
2: is so relatable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. By the way,
1: uh, how's the scene where she drops the rabbit in the boiling water? Is that is that really gruesome, oh. or is that <laughs> yeah. no bunnies here? You know, yeah. uh, I am. Uh, I was going to say, I am like nobody else is. Uh, Gilda Radner was a genius. Oh. Unlike and talk about timing, Marjorie before we go on the air is talking about the story where uh, uh, Chevy Chase is saying, "I can't get a job." <laughs> yeah. SNL is horrible. Yeah, he's sober uh, again.
2: Uh, no one will give him a job. Because uh, probably because he's seventy-four. It's the age discrimination.
1: Let's start with a clip here too. This is a, uh, a trailer from the uh, film about Gilda Radner. Hi, I'm Gilda Radner, and uh, <laughs> okay now. <laughs>
4: She was the very first performer chosen for the cast of Saturday Night Live.
1: Dear Rosanna, Rosanna
3: Dan! (laughs) From the time I was a kid, I loved to pretend. I can't imagine how I got famous. I just took the next job and millions of people were watching
0: me do it. People want to know, well, what made you funny? And I know what made me funny. My biggest motivation has always been love.
1: It's called Love Gildna, uh, Gilda. Is this... Well, I'm confused. Is this in theaters or on CNN or both? What's going on exactly? Uh,
7: it'll be both. It's opening in theaters this week on Friday and tomorrow. And then later on in the year, um, and perhaps even early next year, it'll be broadcast on CNN because, they, as we know, they've been doing these great documentaries like RBG. Yeah. Uh, but- and by the
1: way, for very young listeners, she died young, obviously of ovarian cancer. Yes. For those who don't, so know. first of
7: all, it's been almost thirty years, and she is was really? only forty-two years old. Wow. Wow. So- How is it? It's it's really lovely because this is the first time we've had this kind of look at her. So the filmmaker is Lisa Diapolito, and she had been making films for Gilda's Club, which are the surviving clubs that deal with uh, cancer patients set up by Gene Wilder in the wake of his wife's death. And until now, nobody has really, none of her family, friends, colleagues have spoken out publicly about her. And for the first time they do, and not only that, but... Through the family, Lisa Dapolito has gotten access to tapes that Gilda Radner recorded, to diaries that she recorded. She was very meticulous, and it charts her whole career. And, And she was obviously so successful and so funny. And through childhood films, family films, you see how funny she was. Just at the outset, she was a physical comedian, just like Lucille Ball or Laurel and Hardy. She had it from the beginning, as I think a lot of people do. But, of course, she was riddled with doubt. Um, I mean, she, she just wanted to be the best. She had body image issues because she was a larger child, and her mother reminded her of that. So she had an eating disorder that she had to be treated and you, you have these really painful entries where she's talking about really essentially not liking herself but at the same time this takes you into her humor and you have the appreciation about even when she in her pre-Saturday Night Live days when she was with Dan Aykroyd and all these kings of comedy and she was the lone female standing out and they just you, you see the look that they had to, just to be in her orbit That's it's great fantastic. I can't wait. I didn't know
1: she was the first hire until I just heard that clip either for SNL.
2: Okay, there's a new movie out about Lizzie
1: Borden. Course, Your hometown. My hometown. I, say, I always yeah. say
2: my aunt and uncle lived in the house that, not the murder house, but the house Lizzie Borden moved to after the murder. No. I told that, you that a million no, times. No. Yeah, I don't remember Childhood looking for the axe. You know, <laughs> of course, we never found it. But anyway, um, uh, let's play a little clip from the trailer for Lizzie Borden and then Jared can tell us all about it. The new
1: housemaid mom.
2: Bridget. My name's Lizzie.
1: Do you find your room comfortable? It can get quite hot up there. Sometimes
4: it's best to leave the door open.
2: It's all right, sweet girl. Father, have you done something?
4: Have I done something? To your knowledge, did your father have any enemies? This is America, sir.
1: Every man with a pulse has enemies. <laughs> Pretty good line, I should say. How's this?
7: This is, it's a different kind of film. It's its very slow moving and it, it takes a different, uh, different conjecture about what happened here. It is different. Of course, in real life, she was acquitted. Wait, how do you know it's different? What do you mean?
2: Because I've read a lot of the books oh, about oh, Lizzie oh, okay, Borden. Okay. This is a v- version I have not scene.
7: It really slows it down, and you get a look at uh, Lizzie Borden, played by Chloe Savini, as somebody who doesn't, and she's so good in this film, who doesn't have a lot of freedom. She wants to get out of her very constricted home. By the way, she was from an extremely wealthy family, which I didn't realize. Really extreme wealth for the time, Um, but she wants to break out into society, go out on her own. She's not allowed, or she's cautioned against even going outside into public by her stepmother and her father uh and so she's dealing with this it as you get a sense of her as somebody who's suffering medically from seizures. And then arrives suddenly Kristen Stewart playing the the house servant who comes into the home um, and is essentially sexually abused by the father. This uh, speculates that there was a relationship between the maid and Lizzie Borden. And then when it became too much, essentially victims of the patriarchy because of the father's oppressive thumb, they both conspired to take matters into their own hands.
1: By the way, just as an aside, uh, when I went to see Ryan Landry in Provincetown in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. he told me the night before at Showgirls, which is the other thing he was doing, guess who was in the audience? Chloe Chloe Savini. Savini. Pretty impressive, huh? That is very impressive. You don't seem like you loved the film, though, did you or you didn't?
7: Well, I wouldn't say I loved it, but I, I, I liked it a lot and I appreciated it. It does move very methodically, and so I think that'll turn off a lot of people, but as I think about, the, the really, the stars here are Kristen Stewart and Chloe Savini because you really get into their characters and their point of view, which is most important, and therefore it makes it a very successful film, and it makes you reconsider that story and, and what the consequences were. I mean, we, we read that she essentially was kind of a shut-in for the rest of her yeah. life because of the way society viewed her, even though she was acquitted.
2: That is absolutely true.
1: I can't believe your family has a connection to this. That is really exciting. I know, exciting. it's very
2: exciting. Uh, Yeah, the the, uh, Maplecroft, that was the name of the house.
7: And you said it was where in relation to the house?
2: Well, the murder house was kind of in downtown Fall River on 2nd Street, and the house that she moved to was more in the sort of highlands of the snazzy section of Fall River on French Street, and it was a big gray house, and um, um, it was a big house. And, sounds um, like
1: there's some things Marjorie's not telling us. I, not I know she's being very cryptic is. here. Uh, no, I know. <laughs> Statue of limitations is run, Marjorie.
2: No, I, I had nothing to do with, with hacking anybody to death. I just want <laughs> to be clear to about hear. that. Do we have time for one more? Are we we actually don't. Oh, no. Okay. we have to wait till next week then to talk about the niceties. Nice to see you, we'll get to Good work,
1: time. by the way, on this, uh, this uh, uh, yeah, Highfield this thing. Yeah, great reporting. You're really advancing the story. It's great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. I you. think it's an important one, too. Great.
2: Coming up, we're going to talk to Paul Revel about all matters educational, including the, the challenger to Charlie Baker, Jay Gonzalez plan to get money out of the endowments of some of the richest colleges in Massachusetts to pay for things like an improved MBTA. Paul Revel joins us next. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorie. And this week, WGBH News released a national higher education poll. One of the questions was about a Trump-era plan to tax university endowments, which the federal government did this year, taxing endowments of the richest, not-for-profit schools. Half of the people polled are against this tax. So what does this mean for Jay Gonzalez? Because the Democratic nominee for governor just released his solution for paying for his education and transportation plan. Taxing Harvard and the state's other wealthiest universities and colleges. Join us for his take on this and other education headlines. Is Paul Revel? Paul's a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education. Where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jim and Marjorie. Hello,
2: Paul Revel. Well, let's start out with this uh, poll that we did here at WGBH, a national poll. As Jim just said, uh, one of the things that was fascinating to me is that uh, we found in this poll that eighty-six percent of Americans. Want a racially and ethnic, ethnically diverse student body in college campuses, but most of them, seventy-two percent, don't support using race as a factor to get there in college admissions. So, it's, yeah, no, it's, it's puzzling.
8: A, it, it's a it's a kind of paradox, and it means the devil's usually in the details. Because uh, you know, you wonder what <clears throat> people responding to the poll were thinking when people said using race. Uh, In other words, uh, all things being equal using race or using race uh, without all things being equal. I mean, it's a different approach. But I think there is that paradox there that uh, most parents, I think, and students as well at the higher education level, but parents generally realize we're we're raising our children to live in a very diverse and increasingly diverse society, and they want to go on campuses and have experiences with other students Um, in in classrooms and in the whole civic engagement of school that's diverse and reflects the society we're in. At the same time, when push comes to shove at admissions time, uh, people have uh, their own notions about what ought to be acceptable. Should it be just one test score? Should it be GPAs? Should it be outside activities? Should it be balancing a class to reflect the society? So these are the questions.
2: I think it's that you're you're all in favor of diversity, but if you're a a white parent, you don't want your white kid to be edged out by someone who's of color. (laughs) Well, except this poll
1: says the 72% who uh, don't want uh, let me read it exactly, from the 72% who oppose using race as a factor in admissions, It was relatively consistent amongst white and non-white people. The reason I don't find that so strange, I think it's typical of the – if I may – uh, be uh, uh, unkind of the cluelessness of the American people on so many things. We want transportation to be better. We want better schools. We want preschool right. as long as we don't have to pay for it. Right. I mean, and, and so there are a lot of disconnects between what we want in a society and our ability to do something. Whether it's have affirmative action as a factor, as the Supreme Court currently says, is okay uh, uh, in schools or paying taxes. So, but there's another interesting thing, which is a wonderful coincidence. I think it was. Uh, just sort of serendipity uh the the uh, federal government under the republicans in congress and uh, uh Donald Trump supported taxing the the investment the profits essentially on the investor That's right. the investment income not the whole endowment which is one of the things Jay Gonzalez is proposing over a certain level but rather a smaller piece of it the the investment income from that am i right about that well, yeah no
8: the big distinction between <clears throat> what gonzalez is as um, proposed and what the Trump administration actually did with the tax bill was uh, the difference between taxing the income versus taxing the assets. right? And there's a huge difference. I mean, the, the implications of Trump's proposal that uh, it's not a proposal, but the new tax law on Harvard is you know, north of forty million a year that would be paid. Whereas in the case of Gonzalez's proposal, you're talking about north of four hundred million. And here, so it's for, a huge thing. For difference. Harvard
1: we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, to give right. to, to
8: give you a chance to put that in perspective and, and naturally I work for Harvard, but I think it's a I think it's a spectacularly bad proposal in the first place. But it would amount to... Which, which a, one? Trump's the, or Gonzalez? Gonzalez's proposal okay. would amount to about a $22,000 per student levy on Harvard per year to a fund that actually is used, comes from donations from uh, uh, all kinds of individuals who are favorably disposed to the university and is used for either for scholarships or to underwrite operating costs to keep the cost of tuition and running the university down. So... It, uh, I mean, the reason Democrats widely opposed this kind of proposal when it came forward in the Trump administration was to say, well, this is part of an, a deliberate attack on higher education and particularly on those institutions uh, that harbor faculty members who have critical views of the administration. Uh, now we have right on our home base a leading Democratic candidate, former— cabinet colleague of mine and friend of oh, mine of course, that's who, right, I, yeah. who I respect and like as a friend Patrick proposing something that you, you know you have to think is opportunistic that this is a pot of money that's around he's being pressured to uh, come up with proposals to fund Uh, Some very generous thoughts that he has about what we should do to improve education and improve transportation. I just think it's the wrong place to go. It's a bit like the Patriots in their new uh, wide receiver choice. Oh, excuse
1: me. (laughs) By the way, I never said what the poll results were on the Trump plan or the Trump law. Half of the respondents in the WGBH News poll uh, said uh, uh, colleges should not pay taxes on their endowments well forty three percent said they should, and seven percent were unsure see I I, I I have to think more about this, but and you know much more about where the money goes part of the the the, the problem i guess is twofold: one uh, Jay Gonzalez supported the millionaires' tax, which supreme Court s j c said was unconstitutional and if right. you support billions of dollars uh, going to transportation and um, education you've got to find the money somewhere Two... I think he really made a colossal mistake during the campaign, including in the debate that I moderated between him and Massey. He said he was going to raise taxes progressively to pay for this, but he wasn't telling anybody what tax it was going to be and how much. Right. I think he had to fill in the blanks, which doesn't – but thirdly, until the universities – it's not Harvard, about Harvard. It's about all of them. Until the universities honor their Payment payments in, in lieu, lieu of, of taxation yes. <laughs> obligations <laughs> – yeah. and for those who don't know it, these are these places are tax-exempt. And what – in terms of the property tax and what local governments do is they negotiate these voluntary agreements – with universities where they pay generally a fraction of what they would have paid if their land was taxable under the property tax, like your house is and your house and a yeah. business is. The report The Globe does almost every year shows the vast majority, and I'm not going to name names because I'm not sure who were good payers and who weren't, the vast majority of universities do not meet the obligation they have agreed to right. in terms of supporting laws. public services beyond them. So I, I surely don't want to speak for Gonzalez, but I would assume he'd say that's where the money is. and two. He didn't say the latter, but he probably should. They're not meeting their other obligations. How do you respond to that?
8: Well, first of all, this is a selective class of universities that have been selected. So there are many universities that aren't fulfilling their pilot obligations, most of which wouldn't be hit by this Right, because particular... they're not the wealthiest ones. Right. You're right uh, about so, that. a And good the point. wealthiest ones tend to that's do that. That's probably better. why he's not saying it, and I probably and shouldn't that's, have. That's a, function of state poli- that's a function of local policy Correct. there. And you expect local officials to tighten up and strengthen those policies, which they have the option to do. I I just think a more logical pace, you know, for example, one of the areas in which he needs money is to improve the MBTA. And we haven't revisited the gas tax for ages. And uh, it's. Well, we actually have. Uh, have,
1: But the the voters, uh, uh, your boss wanted uh, uh, to raise the gas tax to Deval Patrick significantly. The legislature was was too scared.
2: way. They did it the wrong way. No. But
1: but then, most recently, and this is what Jeff Deal's running on against Elizabeth Warren because he was one of the leaders of the campaign, the voters. I think stupidly voted to repeal the inflation because, adjustment on the gas tax
2: because the legislature had a written in way to avoid yeah, an any inflation an inflation kind of adjustment. It's called no, an inflation adjustment. No, they didn't adjustment. have to revote this, and that really right. irked a lot That's of people. That's what an that inflation adjustment is. Well, they is. need to put it. They, if they want to do it, they should do it in a way that the legislature has to step up and approve it, so they're not like sneaking away. Uh, but the from point is, the,
8: the, I, I just, just think the, revisiting the, that with a different strategy I is, exactly. is is the way to approach it. Going to the gas tax, I, I mean, you got to think about the consequences. I mean, if you're running Harvard University and they're going to slap that kind of a tax on your endowment, which eventually is going to erode your endowment entirely, uh, you might think about expanding, if you were Harvard or MIT, to the Midwest, you know, where our president's already expressed an interest, rather than suffer taxation uh, like this. Uh, Harvard's confiscatory going to taxes. expand in the Midwest? No, no, I'm not saying Harvard's going to expand in the Midwest, but I'm just saying you create consequence. Any tax, create. if you had a millionaire's tax, you create an incentive for millionaires to move to Providence or to move to uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. If you create this kind of tax on universities, you create an incentive for uh, large universities, prestigious universities, to expand their operations elsewhere if you're going to get hit with these kinds yeah,
2: of Yeah, I don't know where in the Midwest is going to compete with Cambridge,
8: Paul. I'm just not sure. No, no, I, I, but I think, I think these universities are worried about having an impact across the country, and <laughs> that's, a the that's a minor point. That's a minor point, but this is just way too heavy a levy on a select number of institutions. I realize that it's handy, it's convenient, uh, and it gives a ready answer to the question of how you're going to pay for all these things you want to do, Jay. Uh, I just think it's a wrong answer. Uh,
1: and by the way, but the good part of this, even if you don't like it, is uh, there's a tax proposal on the table which can actually be debated, and it will be. And by the way, on October, whoop, are we supposed to mention the date? I think we are. October 17th. October 17th, we will be doing our debate in the uh, governor's race, Marjorie and I, in a debate between uh, Jay Gonzalez and the incumbent Charlie Baker. We're talking to Paul Revel.
2: Another great story, which which does seem to make total sense to me, is that one of the reasons for the achievement gap uh, between kids of color and especially boys and white kids is the lack of diversity in the teaching um, yeah. force. You know, I, I I'm obviously white, but I remember mm. it, what a big deal it was when my son in second grade, had a man teacher, yeah, because there's so few men teaching in elementary schools. And it was a really, It was kind of a life changing thing for him. Do you have those
1: stats in front of you from the New York Times about what percentage are white and what percentage are Um, women? I was shocked. The workforce is becoming even more female.
2: Uh, 77% of teachers in public and private elementary and high schools are women. I
1: was shocked. um, Up from
2: 71% three decades ago. And the teaching force has grown more racially diverse, but it's still. 80% eighty percent white down from eighty percent. So the argument in this piece is that particularly little boys of color, little black little boys, mm-hmm. don't see anybody like themselves.
8: Right. Um, no, I mean I think it's critically important. I can remember my own elementary school experience having a male teacher for fifth and sixth grade and when they deal, got extended it? to sixth grade it was huge. Yeah. It made a huge difference. And for a long time we've argued this is another one of the myths that we have about race, is that race shouldn't matter, that it you know, it's all about what your teacher knows and who's most qualified, and so forth, as though some people from some races are more qualified than other races. Uh, and uh, we find out now with some research that it really does make a difference on all sorts of levels, on the level of gender and on the level of race. And, you know, many of our school— I mean, most urban superintendents I know struggle with this issue. They're trying very hard to diversify the teaching force, which is the obvious answer to this question. And we have a problem. We're not attracting highly qualified minorities to come into the uh, profession at, uh, at the levels that they used to come into. Enrollments at graduate schools of education and teaching programs are down, and uh, attrition is up in the teaching field, so we have shortages. So this question of diversifying, it's one thing to want to do it, it's another thing to be able to execute on doing it and get people to come in. So we've got to think about making the profession more attractive to the very kind of people we need to diversify our teaching force.
1: By the way, Senators Hirono and Gillibrand, uh, are announcing they received a letter signed by more than a thousand Holton Arms alumni. That's where uh, Professor Ford went to school. Supporting, her. I don't think it's supporting her on the mer- on the facts. I don't believe. If you guys can check of the incident, obviously, but rather, I assume, speaking uh, to her oh, honor.
2: As long as you mention Senator Mazie Hirono from Hawaii, uh, I just want to interject quickly. She said, guess who's perpetuating all these kind of actions, meaning rushing through this uh, this uh, appointment of Kavanaugh? She said, it's men in this country, and I just want to say to the men in this country, just shut up and step up and do the right thing for a change. I love that. Are
0: we making any
1: pro getting back to this teacher diversity? Sorry, Paul. We, yeah. We're going the wrong direction. On Point the, taken. On, we're going the wrong direction on the male-female uh, uh, diversity, according to the Apparently, yeah. And we're making some progress on the the uh, 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 racial uh, diversity. Correct. That's right. yep. Okay. Uh, uh, by the way, the, you know, the only problem—I agree—we should have more male teachers. But as you were speaking, I was thinking one of the first male teachers I had was the one that figured out that the book report I submitted was on a book that did not exist. So. Uh-oh. It's I he was a good teacher. That was he, a rather painful experience. Yeah, he had uh, a for good me. detector. So Paul, we did uh, you a favor, oh, I think. Oh, good. I'm always You may recall in the, favor. the last couple of times you've been here, you've criticized the mayor of Boston or at least questioned the, why the mayor of Boston when he announced that Laura Perrill would be the interim superintendent, he did not simultaneously announce that there would be a, uh, uh, a process, a search process right. for did the not. Did you hear what the mayor had to say about it? I did not. Well, here is it. When, I, I, when he was with us last Friday, this is Mayor Walsh, we asked him about Paul's criticism, as I just described, and here is what uh, the uh, mayor had to say. Well, I think when Paul was secretary
6: of education, it would have been great if we figured out the funding for charter Schools under his leadership because the city of Boston has lost money under that, uh, and we're paying more and more money every year, so I appreciate Paul's comments on that publicly. But I'd appreciate it if we could have a
1: conversation and talk about how we're moving forward. You want to respond to the mayor, uh, Paul? Uh,
8: well, this is never uh, changing of the subject. Uh, number he one, he did address
1: the subject. Let me just add that to the. He ultimately did say, uh, in short order, soon we will have a uh, a uh, process announced. but
8: go well, ahead. so uh, and, and, Number one, it's changing the subject. Number two, it's sort of an non attack. But setting that aside, uh, I'd be happy to have a conversation with him about it. I have talked with uh, various people, uh, including some people on the school committee, about it. I've been, I've been clear. I don't have any authority, so it's not, it's not up to me. I'm happy to, to help out. I, I maintain the position that I've articulated from the beginning about this, is that when you announce an interim superintendent, particularly where a community is sensitive about its ability to participate in the process— because we have an appointed school committee rather than an elected school committee, you should be bending over backwards to make available uh, to uh, to people some voice in the process and let them know there will be a process. So I think it was almost inevitable. I, I view this as uh, a, a misstep by the mayor, uh, kind of a tone-deaf uh, political problem that he's created for himself. You could have predicted that these groups were going to come forward. It's a mystery to me why they haven't clarified already that the um, acting superintendent will not be a candidate, which seems to me to be the only open course of action now, but they're leaving that hanging. And at the same time, they're leaving hanging the idea of whether or not we're going to have a process. And I think for all the reasons some of the opponents have brought forward, not that I don't respect Laura Perel, I think she's a a fine uh, educator and education advocate, Uh, but the way in which her appointment happened uh, makes it very difficult to conceive of her getting that appointment permanently. And I think the community—my big worry is this is going to cause us to have to revisit the appointed committee versus the elected committee because people are feeling they don't have any voice.
1: Well, I think I know I'm a minority in this room. We should revisit the elected committee, but uh, we won't have that debate today because Marjorie and I will get in a big no, fight. No, it's true.
2: We should bring back Pixie Paladino. No, democracy
1: is <laughs> a horrible thing. The notion that the people could actually pick those who uh, represent them. Yeah. in matters related to education, know. is really and an in all abomination, my years as a I'll reporter,
2: I've never seen more corruption than I've seen going on at school committee meetings. I what mean, co- corruption?
1: What corruption are you talking about? That's why I didn't want to get are into this. Are you
2: kidding? Everybody's hiring their brother-in-law. I mean, it's just outrageous. Well, what they're goes all on. The they're most always qualified. in executive session. They always say the same thing. We're discussing personnel, and suddenly they come out of executive session, and twelve brother-in-laws have been hired. Can I tell interim. you,
1: this proves you have no idea what you're talking about? Because when I was on the Cambridge City Council and went into executive session, it was not to <laughs> hire anybody. It was the the free dinner from the SNS deli. Try, now, before you go away, I'm surprised to hear you say what you said about Peril. You seem to be saying it because the process has been so screwed up, uh, including not announcing a permanent process. Does this have anything to do with the fact that this bunch of community organizations had demanded, requested that there be a declaration that Peril do the same thing? That say, she say now that she will not be a candidate for the permanent. Position. We asked Marty Walsh about this the other day, and Walsh's position was, she may be, she may not be. I'm paraphrasing what he said. Why do you believe that? What's the basis for you believing that uh, that uh, she should uh, declare herself out of the running?
8: Well, number one, it's it's it's. Fairly standard when you put interims in place that interims make a declaration that they aren't going to be um, candidates for the permanent position so that they can fully concentrate on doing the work at hand and so that nobody from the outside feels that someone inside the system has an inside track because that tends to discourage people from applying. Uh, So I think that was generally true, and I said that from the beginning. I think it's even more true now that you have somebody in office and a dozen sort of – influential civic groups have come forward and said, we don't want her. And at the same time, she says she's being a candidate. This looks like a very messy situation. Again, I think is a deterrent to candidates coming in. I also think it creates a situation in which it will be very unlikely that she could be successful under those circumstances. So I think the better part of valor here would be to retreat. Uh, uh, both for her sake and for the mayor's sake, to declare it open and to get that process out there as soon as possible so people know there's going to be a genuine process, both people in the community and candidates at large who might be taking an interest in Boston.
1: So next time the mayor's with us in a couple of weeks, we'll play what you said in response to him, yeah, and go. then we'll play for you what he said well, in response to Well, we didn't talk about his you.
8: charter schools comment either, because it's, not, an, it's a, not up to the Secretary of Education to solve charter school problems. Boston has charter school problems because people are leaving the public schools System And getting into charter schools and the system is losing money. We have an established formula for how we solve that. I admit that the legislature itself has not fully funded the reimbursements, but I'm not in favor of a new reimbursement formula that that provides uh, additional compensation to Boston because Boston is losing students to charter schools.
1: We'll play that for him, too. Paul, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for your time.
8: Thank you for having me. Why are you
1: sighing?
2: Because I'm thinking how sad it is that there are still so many parents and children who can't get into the Boston Charter schools. Well, people spoke on that issue room. two to
1: one. They spoke on a ballot campaign. they did speak
2: in the issue. But once again, you know, you always talk about rent control. Yeah. That the state decided for a lot of cities that didn't even affect it was yeah. kind of the same thing with you know mm-hmm. everybody in Brookline outraged about charter schools and so we're not going to be any charter schools in Brookline it's the cities right. where they're needed and they don't have enough of them
8: anyway bye Paul yeah. it's a big divider.
2: Paul Rivel Paul Rivel not I got that wrong Paul Revel. excuse me <laughs> Revel joins us regularly he's a professor at Harvard University's Graduate School of Education where he also runs the Education Redesign Lab Paul thank you very much for coming in coming up the big egos and big money that make a professional football is central to Mark Leibovich's gossipy and great new book Big Game the NFL in Dangerous Times we're going to talk to him about the NFL and a little bit about politics as well Mark Leibovich is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And Mark Leibovich is the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine, based in D.C., specializes in politics, from profiles of Paul Ryan to President Trump to his books about our political apparatus, which runs on big money, big egos, and big media. When he sets off to write his latest book about the NFL, it might have seemed like a departure from all that, but it turns out the NFL, with its big money, big egos, and culture of backbiting, is a lot like D.C. The book is called Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. And yes, his hometown team, the Patriots, are central to the book. Mark was born here. He used to work at the Boston Phoenix when he was young and irresponsible. He'll be at the Harvard bookstore tonight at 7 o'clock. Mark, it's great to see you again. Great to be here, guys. Now, should I be standing up? You guys are both... You don't have you to. Yeah.
6: You, want. you don't, don't have to. We just do that because it gives us okay. more energy for yeah, three hours. Yeah, because like, I'm just like, I'm feeling, you know, I want to make sure I match your energy. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. It's your choice. Whatever All you right. want no, to no, do, Mark. No, no, I'm very comfortable. But right. let me just tell you, yeah.
2: you have got so much juicy, gossipy <laughs> stuff in this book. I just absolutely love it, and especially some of the stuff we learned about Tom uh, Brady, which I did not know, including, I love this, somebody um, described him as having this cultivated elegance yeah. so that Tom Brady gets to do the ads for Aston Martin and poor Eli Manning gets stuck with like Ford, you know? Oh,
6: I'm sure if Eli Manning would not trade for, I mean, no, I was like, I think it's, uh, I mean, he, Eli Manning and like Ford. He's a Ford guy. He's a Ford guy. He's a Ford guy. You you know, you're right. I think a Ford guy is going to probably win an election in this country more than an Aston Martin. Guy, well, who knows? that's,
2: that's probably true. Yeah. Pretty boys don't necessarily get elected to be present. But anyway, tell us a great anecdote about Tom Brokaw uh, walking down the street in Manhattan and right. seeing the poster of uh, Mr. Ugg's yeah, pretty boy, Tom Brady. That will
6: involve um, scrubbing the anecdote with the, <laughs> some profanity. So yes. I, I will do that. Um, Tom Brokaw, when he was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago, was going through grueling chemotherapy treatments. He uh, you was know, 75, 76-year-old. Really rough winter for for him. He used to have this morning walk where he would leave his apartment on the Upper East Side, just sort of walk, go get his coffee, get his bagel, get his newspaper. And in these bitter cold days, there was always a poster of Tom Brady doing his Uggs-like thing, just Tom Tom Brady being the, the full Tom Brady. And Brokaw would stand, I mean, Brokaw, he would think a guy who was it all, right, would stand before the poster every morning and just say, Blank you, <laughs> uh, and so he um, he told me this once, and I decided that that would be a perfect. I don't know why. I just said, you know, this is the kind of thing you can throw in a book, right? You don't have editors. You can just like let's indulge that exactly. So um, yeah, I put it in, and he actually told me he met Tom Brady at, a, at the Kentucky Derby once, and told him that story, and Tom and his. Uh, friend Tom Brady and his friends were, were very very amused and actually very flattered so okay. this is where people on that stratosphere fear operate on each other Why
1: did Brady other. talk to you as much as he I mean we hear, now, and again you're a Boston yeah. kid, I know you're a Patriots fan yeah. there are a lot of Patriots fans in the media yeah. there are a lot of pretty prominent respected media people but he has really sheltered these, other than those pathetic little interviews he does uh, during the Monday Night Games with Gray, yeah. whatever his name is, and he does a, a pretty decent interview some Monday mornings on a uh, W. Why do you talk to you so much? I I don't know. I I
6: think it was um. I, it it helps that I'm not a sports writer. I I think I I live Wouldn't in Washington. Wouldn't that be
1: scarier though? Because of all the Trump no, stuff.
6: No, apparently. Well, this was well before the Trump. Oh, right. this, was, oh okay. this was I okay. first met him in 2016, and yeah, I, he actually had a pretty earnest like interest in politics, and that he actually remember. I remember he was asking me the first time we met a lot of questions about how politics worked and how bizarre, it seemed. Because if you look at it, some of his best and most revealing interviews have been on subjects that have nothing to do with football. He did this amazing interview with Tom Ford, the fashion guy, Mm -hmm. once that, I mean, you know, he cares about that stuff, but it it went to really like pretty deep places. I mean, he, he did this interview with Steve Croft on 60 Minutes in like 2004 that went into spirituality and about how he was like, you know, he's won two Super Bowls and is that all there is? And he told me that, People have sent him Bibles after he said that. I mean, we've seen the Sanskrit. Like
2: you said, right? Yeah, no,
6: no. He well, he's does a lot of Eastern stuff. So I mean, he's a very. Um, this was what impressed me about him, and what surprised me about him. He's a free thinker. I mean, you could say naive. You could say possibly. Um, you know, Alex Guerrero, his his body coach, has been. Uh, accused of all kinds of things and he's you know he's had a pretty shady past but he um he's open to things and so i think he just liked that i was different and we'd never met and you know i went to michigan i'm from here so we're exactly the same right
1: (laughs) you know is there i mean anybody who reads your stuff uh, i hope would agree that you play it straight down the middle and you're you're pretty tough in the best sense of the word yeah. was there not a piece of a fanboy kind oh, of thing a huge i piece. shook his hand at a head <laughs> yeah. shaving thing for cancer about 6 mm-hmm. months ago yeah. and i as i said to him i was ready not to wash it for 6 months <laughs> was there not a piece of that with you there was a huge piece of that i was i was um,
6: embarrassingly open about it I, it was um, i mean i've interviewed you know, presidents and CEO types and all kinds of people. And this is the one I was really nervous about. I mean, I remember, like, literally my palms were sweaty. Uh, I (laughs) got there early because it was a hot day in New York. This was, I guess, around July 4th. And no, no, it was like I was a six-year-old boy again. And, like, Carl Yastrzemski was like you know yelling at my sister at star market or and actually that was jim rice this was no this was like really i mean like you you you're a kid and everyone is just physically and just in all ways bigger and that's sort of what it was like i was suddenly i mean i was like 40 something years old at the time and there he was so yeah it was an odd dynamic
2: so is he prettier when you're 3 feet away from him um, on tv you know
6: uh field? he's a good looking guy there's he's no question i don't think i'm breaking any news there yeah. but you know, but our, our relationship was more about just uh, connecting over all great spiritual things.
1: Of course, so, yeah. we're talking to Mark <laughs> Leibovich from the New York Times Magazine. His latest is "Big Game: The NFL in Dangerous Times." So, you—I think you were responsible for solving the how the maga hat. Got into the locker. You Apparently. deserve credit for that, right? And so, for yeah. though I assume most people have read about this since the book has been out for a bit. Tell people how uh, we believe it got there. Well, no, Robert
6: Kraft, who I, I assume had one of the very limited and coveted edition MAGA hats early on in the Trump um, juggernaut, uh, put put one in his locker, and then some reporters saw it. They asked him about it, and he. I guess naively, unthinkingly, whatever. I mean, he, he mentioned, he said, oh, yeah, Donald's great. We used to, I judged one of his beauty pageants, and we golfed together, and uh, he, you know, all of a sudden he was linked with with, with Donald Trump, and Trump, who I actually happened to be writing about at the time, was just dropping his name, like, left and right and center, and trying to accrue the goodwill that Tom Brady and Robert Kraft, and he eventually Bill Belichick have around New England to his own brand, and... Anyway, yeah. So I think Brady eventually wanted to just run in the other direction.
1: And it, it, since Craft and Trump, it, we saw the picture of Kraft with an open collar mm-hmm. going up the gold elevators. You know, a couple days after the election, we saw yeah. him at the infamous dinner in Mar a Lago with I think it was the one with the Shinzo Japan- Abe, right? Exactly, yes. Japanese Prime Minister. Is this is this affection maybe too strong a word, but I'll use it. Is the affection substantively based, or is it? Sycophancy or or I, accessibility based. It's a great question.
6: I would say it is. First of all, it's a level of wealth and fame and just sort of privileged class that I could not even be begin to understand. I mean, part of it is like you see people who are kind of famous, kind of successful, and they're here. But I mean, this is just there's a club. Like there's a club here. There's a club here, and then there's a club here. Right, and
1: he's the, putting his hands way over way his head. For those air. not watching yes. on television,
6: they, like, this. this is like way up. It's a way up in wealth. I mean, I don't. I mean, they just. I don't know if they have meaningful conversations about meaningful things and ideas and confidences are are exchanged. But um, I could not begin to understand. We couldn't, and so you do get into the stratosphere where it's just different.
2: Yeah, but, and, and that whole. I mean, even though all those NFL owners are not necessarily that famous. I mean, I certainly don't know them. I saw the pictures of them. Yeah. Some of them in your book. But they're in that wealth stratosphere well, as
6: well. It's more than wealth though. It's like you you just like, they look, it, Donald Trump loves do- dropping Tom Brady's name and Robert Kraft's name and vice versa. Like by way of their their, I'm raising my hands again. Their, their mutual like, name dropping sort of brings flattery upon the two of them. There's like a mutual yeah. uh, Can you say math? kind of thing on this? On no, this, right? you can't. Yes, you can. Okay, I, it's, public okay. it's a very <laughs> clinical term. Yeah. Uh, but no, there. I think there's a lot of that going on.
2: But yeah. there also, obviously, I mean, you you talk obviously a lot about Bill Belichick in this book, but he he bought the Trump a Thing as well because yeah. he wrote that. That letter. yeah, that
6: was interesting. I, I read that right. Saw that, you know Trump was reading this letter from from Belichick, and I was like, huh, it doesn't sound like how Bill Belichick talks. I wonder if um he either is making this up That's or if, he, if Belichick was just you know Belichick. I mean, he does. I don't know what he does in his spare time. Is he did he know he was going to do this? Because this is sort of what Donald Trump does. He he is not shy about um, going public with private conversations or conversations that the other person didn't intend to make public. So, but eventually, yeah. I mean, uh, Belichick didn't deny it. I think he wanted the distraction to go away. But I mean, that was that you know strange episode during that period.
1: You know, it may be unfair, but I'll ask you anyway, and then you can tell me if you want to break it down a bit. Yeah. We're talking to Mark Leibovich His book is "Big Game: The NFL in Dangerous Times." Can you describe the owners as a class? And I know not everybody fits the mold you'll describe, but can you describe them as a class? A club. Maybe a class. Sure. I mean, I, I think it, it, class
6: sort of implies that they actually have more class than they have. <laughs> um, it's a different meaning of the cr- class. I mean, a lot of these people are, are just fairly smaller than life and not that impressive group. But I mean, to get into the NFL is huge. Like people, like really, really rich, really, really prominent people in this country have been trying to get teams. And they don't know. Like open Donald Trump, for like example. Like Donald Trump over And they four wouldn't decades. let him in. They wouldn't let him in. Why? Anymore. Um, Most of them thought he was a clown. Most of of them, well, first of all, there's history around the USFL, the United States Football League, which Donald Trump was one of the major domos in starting. He owned the New Jersey Generals. He ultimately was pretty responsible for putting them out of business and folding the league because he wanted to move them to um, the fall to compete with the NFL. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it didn't go well. There was a lawsuit. Um, A lot of ugly history. But no, I mean, they, like a lot of people in business in that wealth stratosphere, they have dealt with him. and. They you know, didn't want to be his business partner.
2: So. And you don't think much of Roger Goodell. I suppose that isn't that unusual. Um,
6: um, yeah. I mean, I think the owners seem to think a lot of him because he makes them a lot of money. No, I, I interviewed the commissioner a couple of times. Um, he's not – I mean, he's not a bad guy. He's just not he, – he's just a very nervous interview. He's a terrible interview. But he's also – it doesn't strike me as like someone who should be the CEO of a major cultural and entertainment juggernaut. In
1: you know, maybe this is naive because I don't travel in those circles either. And I don't know many people in that sort of world. But when you step when one steps back and looks at what I consider to be the brilliance and simplicity of Trump's repeated uh, 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 throwing red meat. To his base, yeah. uh, his white base, about those black NFL players that have the audacity to disgrace their country and the flag or whatever other horrible thing to do. It is so simple, but you say to yourself when billionaire successful business people fall for it, hook, line, and sinker, well, maybe Trump is not as clueless as some of us think he is it works brilliantly doesn't it it it,
6: he would say that uh, this is being trump he, he would say he being trump that this is a political winner for him that it is very um look i mean his base likes it you know if you look at polls maybe 55% of people who watch NFL games thinks think the players should be standing it's an issue he understands it's not that complicated it puts him in the middle of this great spectacle of of american life which is pro football and so it kind of has everything there's also personal grievance involved cuz he doesn't you know he loves messing with this Club that would never as a member. But it
1: only works, Mark, doesn't it? Because the owners are so scared. And so, it I mean, ha- if yes. he, I mean, there's a new owner, I don't even know who he is, who bought a team this week or something from sh- Carolina. The sh- the Carolina or Panthers, yeah. Said, I honor the, you know, I respect the right of my players yeah. to protest. I would never stand in the way, that kind of thing. Yeah,
6: no, I mean, David Tepper, I, I don't know the guy. He is that the guy? The, yeah, okay. I just came into the league. He just came into the league. But I mean, to me, that's a pretty bold statement for an NFL owner because most of them are going to cower. And I mean, I had the opportunity for, for this book to hear a tape of a secret tape of um, a group of owners and a group of players who were meeting at the height of the anthem uh, crisis last October. And just to listen to, first of all, they were just talking over each other. And the players, they had a singular objective, which is, why isn't Colin Kaepernick, our brother, on the field? And the owners were like, yeah, 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 we'll get to that, but that's not about this. Can you stop kneeling and what's Donald going to do next? I mean, you have a sense of incredible short-sighted thinking among people who you know are in a very You know, enviable position who have all kinds of leverage, and yet they're just worried about this guy in the White House tweeting. I mean, think about the sentence I just said. Like, think of how like that. Like, what would who would ever think a sentence like that would be uttered five years ago? I mean, that's the thing about the NFL. They're all afraid of like the next chandelier falling on their heads.
2: But but that their fears seem to be legitimate in some sense because they're they're losing money. Well, I don't know if they're losing Mm, money, but the ratings are not what they were. I,
6: I think that like. A lot of consumers of politics, NFL owners are slowly seeing that Donald Trump has maybe reached a point of diminishing returns as far as him sort of going back to the same well, the same issue, the same tweets. Because a novelty does sort of wear off. I mean, you can only do this a few times. And I I think... He did make a dent in, I mean, he, he created all kinds of problems for them last year. He created all kinds of bad will among conservative fans. Many of NFL fans are quite conservative. Uh, traditionally, it's been the liberals who have been more uh, suspicious of the NFL, maybe for reasons of violence or over-the-top patriotism or militarism. Um, and, and so, yeah, he's caused all kinds of friction in the culture around football. So that itself is difficult for them because they want a pretty easy life. They want to be sort of revered as kings of their communities. So, but but I do think that that look. I, I think I don't know how much longer Trump is going to have the ability to just sort of turn large sectors of the comp- population around this business.
2: We're talking to uh, Mark Leibovich. The book is "Big Game: The NFL and Dangerous Times." I was anxious to talk to you because I've asked so many people this, and you have insights that I certainly don't have. I was kind of surprised that there wasn't more of a revival. Uh, this fall of the kneeling because of uh, the, you know, the idea yeah. that we are either going to stay in the locker room or not come out and kneel, and you're going to have the penalties and the big brouhaha. So the, the strength in numbers,
3: right? yeah
6: it, Yes, and but here's the thing. This is what's interesting to me, and that's a really good point, because last year I think players, for the first time in a long time, realized that they have a power that they didn't know because NFL players are exploited to a large degree as far as... In, in pro sports, they don't have guaranteed contracts. Yeah, Their careers are really short. Football, we're talking F- football about. Yeah. Different
2: than the NBA.
6: Absolutely. Their, their careers are short. They're, they're, it's taking a huge physical toll. I mean, there's all kinds of things. and um, Yeah, but Colin Kaepernick and people who were kneeling after him or protesting afterwards were affecting the bottom line. Last week, in, out in California, I was on Martellus Bennett's podcast. Martellus Bennett is a Eleven-year veteran. He played for the Patriots for a year. Really interesting guy. He retired from football last year and is now running an animation studio. He's doing all kinds of creative things. He's got this podcast that we were just sort of going back and forth for like an hour and a half. I don't know if they put the whole thing up there, but it just posted yesterday. But he was saying he was he raised his fist during the national anthem. He did when he was with the Patriots. Um, I think he was one of a small number, maybe two or three. And then in Green Bay, I think he might have been the only player, one of two players, who did when he played for the Packers last year. And he told me that a lot of the younger players, you know, on sort of the roster bubble, who were not, who had not made as much money as he had, who were not in a secure position, yeah. said they would like to do something too. But it's a terrible career move, as Colin Kaepernick, as Eric Reed, as any number of other players could attest to. So Mart- Martellus would say to them, "Look, I'll just do it so you don't have to." But you do get a sense. He said that if people had guaranteed contracts, if there was more security for players, you would see a lot more, um, frankly, you know, expression of that.
1: Mark Levich, can we talk about the other? Uh, uh World In which uh, you spend most of your time, use the expression short uh, uh, sighted thinking a second ago. Chuck Todd was with us at 11 o'clock. And I don't want to put words in Chuck's mouth. But I Mm -hmm. think Chuck would say, Marjorie, correct me if I'm wrong. He was talking about the short sighted thinking of the Republicans if they decide on a straight party line vote with 50 or 51 of them, 50 plus Pence or 51 approving. He made a point, which I never thought about, is there's never been a Supreme Court nominee who's been approved with not one vote from the other party. And we double-checked it's true. What's your... We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if there's going to be a hearing. We don't know if if Professor Ford's going to show up. What's your sense of the potential impact on the midterms if the Republicans decide to just slam this baby through... Even if there's no FBI investigation and no appearance by uh ford
6: yeah i i think um well i mean that that's a tough one i I do think you could go either way on this. you could say the Republican base would be so furious that you know, they would punish whoever the Republicans are if there are republicans if they if they vote if they, if like Collins or Murkowski mm-hmm. flake someone you know decides to just sort of you know step out um You know, that could be a big sort of drain on the bay. I mean, but or the other I mean, women, look, women voters. I mean, the the Democratic base is so energized to begin with. The question is, and someone said this to me yesterday, how much more energized can they get? I mean, if you need another basically an Anita Hill happening, you know, in a a much more woke environment in which, you know, women are already energized to a degree that they haven't been in a long, long time, if ever. You could just be making things worse in the midterms. Although I don't know, look, I mean, when you think of like short-term thinking, and the other, it's like collective thinking. I mean, this is this is parochial thinking. I mean, Heidi Heitkamp, Jeff—well, actually, not Jeff Lakes, because he's not running for reelection. Susan Collins. I mean, they their number one concern, maybe not Claire McCaskill, she's already come out in one way or the other, is self perpetuation. It's, I mean, there is a big and sort of complicated. Um, you know, uh, um... Consideration that, that a Joe Manchin is going to make. I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, I think these swing Democrats are probably more important at this point because if they can hold serve, who knows? But I don't know. I mean, I think that would require looking at the big picture that most individual lawmakers don't usually entertain.
2: We're talking to Mark Leavitt. The book is Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times. You uh, had a great uh, magazine piece in the New York Times a few years ago about Donald Trump before he was uh, President Trump, obviously. And... <laughs> There's a great section which we just uh, not Xerox we printed it out. I sound like I'm 110. Was mimeograph? <laughs> <got laughs> yeah. I wrote it out in, <laughs> in, in, in a long On <laughs> well, yeah. carbon paper. Yeah, in, that's right. right, yeah. carbon yeah. paper, right. Uh, about uh, his concern about you you're washing your hands when you were on the uh, plane yeah, with him. Yeah, he's germaphobe. Yeah, tell us about this and the shrimp and the.
6: No, no, he
1: was a. Uh... It's like a Seinfeld. <laughs> it's a Seinfeld thing. No,
6: it, it sort of was like we were on this plane. We were on his campaign plane or what his plane? That was his campaign plane. <laughs> uh, we were leaving Dallas. He was uh, so it was funny because it was me and him and Hope Hicks in the front of the plane, and he was watching a couple of TVs in which he was flipping around to see how the news was covering the rally he had just done in Dallas. And then a whole maybe a staff of 20, many of them security people, logistics people, who were in a compartment in the plane. I mean, the, the food was sort of brought past them, but none of them could move until the Donald was ready to eat. So he invited me to the back cabin where this really good Texas restaurant you know, had catered, or I think Dallas restaurant had catered like this great, these large tins of food. And there was a shrimp component to this. And I think, yeah, yes, he wanted, he, asked, he invited me to wash my hands, which I assume meant that he wanted me to wash my hands. He had already washed his hands. I mean his, his cleanliness and his um, obsession with that is well documented. but the the thing that people really took from that story and this was like a 7,000 word story, but I probably got more comments on what I'm about to say than the following He, was, he, he warned me that I should not double dip the shrimp. <laughs> Because there was like some kind of cocktail sauce, (laughs) and I had shrimp, and I think it was more of a—I think he he wanted to make sure that I took a portion of the cocktail sauce onto my plate so that the dipping would take place in a contained— um area and not in the common cocktail sauce did you have courage area.
1: to stand up to him or you just were cowed? no no
6: no i was i no i wouldn't be respectful i was a guest on his plane but he then told me a story about a guy who was 300 pounds like the the, the the offender at some party like had just done a terrible triple dip or something and he felt his weight was like relevant but no but he was like very he was very animated about this and look he was very i i would not want to insult him. Do you
2: know? Because I have always wondered. He does have to shake people's hands when he, he when he's out on the trail. So does he do the Purell thing? Do we have you any know? Idea? It's funny.
6: I don't remember him using Purell. Yeah, I've never seen it Although him a, a lot of politicians like are they swear by that. Yeah, stuff. well, it I makes
2: mean, sense. I mean, if you're shaking hands of hundreds of people a day, somebody might have
6: a I, cold. I, I, I think reasonable... Purell is a little bit. I think he's just into more, just old school hand washing.
2: Yeah, old school hand washing. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay.
1: Mark, it's great to see you. Great to see you Another guys. Great, one great, more uh, book. Th- 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 yeah. th-
2: th- One more thing before you go. I yes. just want to know about. Um, uh, Brady and his uh, having absolutely no hobbies. That's that's just it. Um, totally disciplined. Yeah. It's all about giving up your life for football. It
6: is, yeah. And yeah, I mean, see, I've tried that too, but it doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, like, but I he's, watched, got, the watched, he's, he's got, all- got the health business. No, look, he's got the help business. Now, look, he he put. I think that might be changing a little bit. He seems to have, you know, maybe tried to step a little bit away from yeah. football in the last off and he's talked
2: about his joylessness with Belichick, maybe even uh, yeah he has an explosive well
6: yeah that's like a, there's a new book on belichick by a guy named Ian O'Connor of, uh sports of uh, ESPN, it sounds like it sort of pushes that story along. Now, look, like any marriage that long is going to have strains. And I think clearly they're sick of each other, but they're also stuck with each other. And while they're together, they might as well try to win football games. And I'm all for it.
2: Although a lot of men might say if they were married to Giselle uh, a Bunch and they could overcome whatever strains, there might be. Yeah, it's a that.
6: different kind of marriage, though. It's like, you know, it's, it's like a football marriage. It's like yeah, with the coach and. Oh, okay. You know, okay. This is getting really deep. No. <laughs> um, By the way, it's good to be in a place where I don't have to apologize for being a Patriots fan because I was on the West Coast last week and I say, hey, Mark's a Patriots fan. I'm from
1: Philadelphia, my friend, so be careful. I am an Eagles fan. You know what?
6: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. (laughs) In New York
2: City, you have to go to specific Patriots. Well, I live in Washington. Oh, you live in – okay. So I know in New York you have to go to specific Patriots bars, right? No,
6: you can just – that's the thing. I I actually made the decision I'm not going to give the NFL any more of my money because the Patriots in Washington where I live are usually – if there's a big game, it's on TV. It's on free TV. I mean, they're national enough. The playoffs will always be on. And if I really want to watch the game, I'll go to a bar. Or not. But I don't want to give the NFL my
2: Well, I'm going to say congratulations again. Like I said, I don't know who's got more good gossip. You or Bob Woodward and his book about.
6: <laughs> you know what? I'll take. I will t- I will be signing copies of my book tonight and also Woodward's book if you want me to do that. <laughs> yes, Harvard you book will.
2: Book. You'll be signing them at the Harvard Bookstore at yeah. 7 o'clock. Mark Leibovich is chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. The book Big Game, the NFL in Dangerous Times, Harvard Bookstore, 7 o'clock. Thank you so much. And Coming by the up, way, you know
1: what gives people an opportunity to figure out? He will be at the Harvard Bookstore at 7 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know where he will also be at exactly 7 o'clock? Greater, on Boston, Greater Boston with Jim Browdy. And you guys yeah. have to figure out how he did that. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's an it unbelievable really amazing The event
6: <laughs> could be taped <laughs> yeah.
2: Coming up, we're getting yeah, on we'll Cork with Jonathan also of the Boston Wine School. Stay tuned for that in 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie. And last time Jonathan Alsop, founder of the Boston Wine School, was here, we just celebrated what was then the latest study on drinking. This is right, that middle-aged moderate drinkers were less likely to get dementia. And to prove the point, I actually remember that we talked about it, but what is there to celebrate off the latest research on alcohol when it comes to drinking zero alcohol? being the only healthy amount. He joins us to talk about this and a whole bri- variety of other <laughs> related things. He's author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Jonathan Alsop, nice to see you. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. How Hello, are you? Hello,
2: Jonathan Alsop. So great to see you. So we wanted to talk about uh, some stories that could really affect your business. The first one is the thing that ma- Jim just mentioned. Um, this is, uh, the alcohol, we don't know if it's safe in any amount at all. I mean, do you think this impacts what you do?
5: You know, um, I think... Um I think, first of all, we have to be really, really realistic about this. Yes. Ethanol has been great to me. <laughs> I, ethanol has given me something to write about. Ethanol has given me something to teach about. Um, ethanol has enriched my life spectacularly. Our family just lost a member of our family to alcohol.
2: Oh, okay? sorry. So,
5: so as as far as I am on this end of the spectrum of the wine life being very good for me. Um, my cousin Jeffrey, that wasn't uh, that wasn't his fate, and that wasn't his life. Oh, and we need to be super, super realistic about this and not... Uh, you know, when you read wine magazines, when you talk to wine people, it's relentlessly positive. And, you know, I'm from Ohio. I have a relentlessly, irrationally positive mental attitude about everything. Yeah. But I think when it comes to this... Um, you know, we return to some basic concepts of, of, of moderation, some concepts of um, wine as food, you know, versus wine as uh, versus wine as booze. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to solve this. I don't know um, how to think about it. I mean, in, in medical terms, it's true. There's no way to to assess a, a safe. Quantity of ethanol in your diet, so I think scientifically and medically you have to say um, there 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 is no safe there is no safe there no, is no there is no of... recommended quantity f- from a technical perspective
2: but it is one of the great pleasures is it not to go out for dinner with friends and to have a wonderful glass of wine mm. I mean obviously, if you're having seven glasses of wine then you've got something right. that you may have to consider but
1: most well, see, I it's, think it's not just the competing studies uh, uh, that, you know, this literally last time you we were here, we had a major study yes. that was different from the one now. But I, I can't imagine somebody, I hate to be anti science because I'm not, I don't can't imagine the profile of the person who was a moderate drinker who says, I now read the study that there's no amount of alcohol that's safe. And by the way, and, that takes into and account things like. I'm not going to drink at all. Drunk, I'm not going to drink at yeah. all. Yeah, so, but, but one thing that would worry me if I were in your business mm. is marijuana. Yes. Uh, th- there's a story I read where there's a, a they talk about a the limited inebriation dollar. <laughs> And what the, the, I love that expression. And I with love the, that. And right. the, uh, for those who haven't uh, figured out what that means, it means there's well, only so much available dough you have right? to spread around between intoxicants—either yeah. wine or beer or hard liquor or uh, marijuana—and right. obviously, it's becoming more and more uh, legal. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I mean, the national Absolutely. polls are overwhelming. Ultimately, when Jeff Sessions is gone, it's probably going to be legal nationally. Mm. That is a a threat. To the wine industry, is it not?
5: Well, you know, it's being um, it's being perceived as a threat, and people are worried about it. And people are saying, are saying, "Hey, you know, is this?" As you say, you have only so much disposable income. Uh, you've got you know x x quantity of buzz that you're determined to put on. <laughs> you, you know, it's a, it's kind of a zero sum game in right. in some ways, and there is this fear that. That, that these, different, these different intoxicants are going to take away from other markets. I mean, this is something, when I think back, you know, I'm 102 now. You know, when I think back to the emergence of cassette tapes and 8-track <laughs> and VHS, remember how these were going to destroy right. media and they, they were, were going to destroy? Yeah. The, you know, the fact is that people who make, you know, people who are into these different intoxicants are into them in a, in a, in a big way. Um, so that to try to, to 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 think that you know to think that you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna um, section one off and have it not affect another is just I don't know I, I don't think I'm I'm not I'm I'm not feeling as threatened by it uh, personally. Uh, if anything, I see educational opportunities. Um, for what people don't know about Well, you know what we should
1: do? Then we should celebrate the fact that you're not threatened. What are we drinking (laughs) here today? Uh, What's the first wine of choice?
5: Okay, so I brought a couple of reds on on Monday, October 8th, Columbus Day. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're doing a class at Boston Public Market. You know, wine people think that wine solves everything. So I've tried to find two wines that relate to, in some positive way, uh, with Christopher Columbus in first contact. So the first wine that we're tasting, this is a Which a, a Barbera from northwestern Italy. Columbus was from Genoa in north northwestern Italy. And this is a Barbera it's di fabulous. Asti. Uh, and Asti is a little town about about 50 miles north of where um, of where Columbus Columbus grew up. Um, it's delicious. You're liking that? Yes, I am. Yeah, the I'm grape- not even a big red it's wine I am, and this is my kind of well, red the grape wine. Well, ca- The grape is called Barbera, and it's kind of – I mean, you guys tell me what you think. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a big wine, but it's also, it's also kind of soft, right? Some, some red wines can be a little overwhelming. Um, Do
1: you think it's big and soft, Marjorie? Mm.
2: I think it's not a heavy, thick wine, right. which, which puts me to sleep right, in about two seconds. <laughs> So luckily uh, it's not <laughs> That kind of wine.
1: How much is that, uh, uh, Ron?
5: And by uh, the way, on your Facebook
1: page, you yes. list these, right? Well, so so,
5: you... so at slash Boston Public Radio, oh, okay. I'm slowly but surely accumulating all of the wine oh, great. that we've tasted online. So if people want to order them, if people want to read about them, if people want to find out right. more, uh, bostonwineschool.comslash Boston Public Radio. How
1: much does this uh, set you back?
5: Twenty two. Twenty two dollars. Wine's so...
2: more of a fall winter drink. Well, isn't and, that's,
5: it? and that's another thing that's happening now. We're starting to really transition yeah. people's 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 eating habits or transition yeah, with white the wine weather seems bad in cold weather What's the other one <laughs> So um so Columbus was from Italy it was the Spanish monarchs who paid for his trip Oh a Spanish to one. you are US. so creative So I I'm I'm I'm, I'm, I'm 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 trying Okay what um, do you got here So this is a Rioja Pagos de Tahola uh, like this, this is better. and this is um, this is Rioja. This is the signature. Oh. This is the signature grape of Spain. You know, it was the Spanish monarchs that paid the bill. Some of the money had to come from the wines of Rioja. We yeah. know this. I mean, this is this is the most. Even if you don't know anything about wine, even if you don't know anything about Spanish wine, you've heard of Rioja,
1: and um, you like this one better. How do you okay. describe this one? Go ahead. Don't worry. speak from your heart, heart yeah. exactly. <laughs> speak from your heart. Well, what again,
2: it? it's it's lighter red, mm-hmm. and, and as someone who doesn't like heavy mm. wines, right. Red wines. This is a lighter one, and it just has a nice taste and aftertaste. Mm. Aftertaste is key, Jim. Ooh, I've always found in my too. wine excursions.
3: Yeah. What's yeah. this one called again? Yeah. Good job. So I'm this is at me. So
5: this is uh, Rioja, and this is the winery is called Pagos de Tahola. And how much is that uh, one? Uh, this one's 27.
1: You know, have you been reading about, I'm sure this is anathema to you, even though you're so upbeat today. I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> I've been reading about these things that people go alcohol free for a month. I love the expression I know. about go sober for October sober for is October. what some people, but the thing I don't understand about if you, if, this is not an alcoholics thing. It's basically, a, it sounds like it's yeah. a cleanse one system thing, yes. but I know you're not a scientist, but the sense, like, I've read a few articles about this. If it turns out it the month of abstinence sort of undid whatever the negative effects of drinking yeah. are, then I would say, well, do it for a month. Right. But everything I've read suggests that for the month you avoid all the negative impacts, well, but it has no spillover from what happened before or well, after. Is well, that your understanding? Well, yes.
5: This is this this is the issue with this that within you know you know sober October. Or, or what, or what, you know, wine free January, or whatever you want to pick, um, you do have some benefits, you know, reduced blood pressure, um, blood sugar, um, a lot of positive impacts, uh, to a person's individual uh, blood sugar. But, you know, the thing is, if on November 1, you immediately go, (laughs) you immediately go back to your, uh, to your previous behavior. There's no, I mean, there's no long-term benefit. You're just taking a little a little break. You're taking a yeah. little break from that.
2: Yeah, I, I, moderation. Jim, what,
5: moderation. Moderation. what, so what month of the year is it when you shave your head? I don't that, shave. So well,
1: actually, it, I don't. Sh- Why well, come close to shaving? Uh, it's the thing that's done. Right. Uh, it uh, in that is done by a, a corporate leader who does wonderful things. Granite Telecommunications well, in Quincy. Well, let's do this. And,
5: let's let's try and do this together next time. You shave your head. I'll go like alcohol free. I'm not. I'm not. Oh, gonna, you mean like, in the same like, deal? like I'm not. Like I'm not. I'm not doing this for nothing. Okay. This is. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, but the difference this is, gotta, is, this is gotta, the head of the some company. Kind of, some kind of yeah, positive delivers.
1: <laughs> donates $50,000 if you shave your head? Right. So who's going to donate anything if you don't drink?
5: I I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to make He's, this thing Yeah, work. he okay. needs a cause.
2: I, he needs a cause. Hey, um... Th- we always we're in this terrible situation down in North Carolina. Is when the floods are just oh, not yeah. ending. But we've also had these terrible mm. situations in wine country mm-hmm. where the drought is really impacting wine growing. So, what is the forecast for this increased th- a threat from climate and we're running disruption? low
5: on time? So, sure. yeah. so, so there's a, so one of the issues with this is that this notion of more sun, more heat better growing conditions are going to be bad for wine. It's a little bit counterintuitive because, because on the one hand, it's going to be great for grapes. You're going to get riper grapes. You're going to get a bigger crop. Uh, from an agricultural perspective, you know, global warming is not necessarily bad for grapes but it can be bad for wine downstream because it, 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 it throws off the whole sugar and okay. acid balance of the grape. And that ends up giving you um, unrealistic tasting okay. wines downstream. So we
2: shouldn't worry too much yet is the bottom line. It's
5: it's starting. The The uh, Sahara has already jumped the Mediterranean. So I think it's time. to You should start worrying. One oh, more okay. time. If
1: people want to check these yep. wines out, where do
5: they go? com slash Boston Public Radio. Jonathan, thanks as always. Is thank Jonathan you, It's where Jonathan is from. The Boston Wine
2: School. Thank you, He's also the author of the Wine Lovers Devotional. Um, learn more about Boston, to learn more about Boston Wine School, go to bostonwineschool.org. Jonathan, thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to, to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can always find us by way of our podcast and iTunes. Tomorrow, I'm really excited, live at the Boston Public Library. We're going to be joined by actor and director Ethan Hawke, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who's got a new book out, plus our Friday news quiz. Uh, What's on television, please, Jim Bradley? Well,
1: Mark Leibovich is going to continue the conversation with me. Uh, uh, The guy who used to be the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, who is now the chair of the board, has written a terrific book about management, enlightened management in America. He's going to join me. And uh, last week I had Livingston Taylor, whom I love. His uh, niece, who you met a couple of months ago, Sally Taylor, has oh, got great. a wonderful exhibit. Well, a, wonder, a wonderful thing she's got going in Western Massachusetts. Sally Taylor is joining me tonight. So I'm going to talk to her as well. And by the way, it's not bostonwineschool.org. It's bostonwineschool.com. Oh. Am I not right? Oh, dot com. Dot com. Thank you very much. It's Jonathan.
2: Okay. Thanks to our crew. Thank you for listening. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Have See you a great library. afternoon and hope you can come to the library.